VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, April the 19th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, David Williams. He's produced the program. Please do indeed speak with David this morning when you give us a call in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, cold, damp day here in town. And we hear that the icebergs are in in droves. Somewhere between 200 and 275 icebergs are, have been spotted. Now with the northeast wind, maybe move them a little closer to shore for a better look at them. I heard a fellow out in Fairland this morning say that the uh, iceberg in his area is over 100 feet tall and people are flocking out to have a gawk at it and hopefully dropping a few bucks in the towns that they visit. All right, so Growlers kick off their quest for their second Kelly Cup in the ECHL tonight. They're in Adirondack, so good luck to the Growlers. they got a hot team this year, so really in with a chance to win the Kelly Cup. And uh, up in Dundas, Ontario, the Clareville Caribou at the Allen Cup. 3-2 win yesterday over Innisfail, so they're now 2-0 in that Laud Championship. And, of course, best time of year for hockey fans as we settle in for the playoff season, which is the very best hockey. The intensity gets ratcheted up to the nth degree. And I suppose some of the series that people are keeping a close eye on, I mean, obviously you're watching your own team, if they're still alive. So the Leafs, you know, the Leafs fans, so six straight first-round knockouts. It's been 13 years, I think, since the Leafs advanced through the first round. They were a favorite against the Tampa Bay Lightning. Last night did not get off to the start they were hoping for. Lost 7-3, so I'm sure lots of Leaf fans preparing for potentially another disappointment, but there's a long way to go in that first-round series. And then the two uh, many of us are keeping our eye on, Dawson Mercer and his New Jersey Devils, 5-1 loss at the hands of the Rangers, Alex Luke and his Colorado Avalanche, 3-1 loss to Seattle. So not the start that those lads. And for Dawson Mercer, that's his very first playoff game. I'm sure the nerves were, were ratcheted up again for young Mercer. Anyway, let's talk about para-athletics. So we've produced some absolute stellar athletes on the para side. You know, the Liam Hickey's, Katarina Roxon's come to mind. But if you're a current para-athlete or you're eligible to participate, please do indeed put April 29th on your calendar. So let's introduce you to a fellow named Jeremy Jones. He's a five-time Canada Games athlete, wheelchair racer, basketball player, cross-country skier. He's getting prepared to go to the national championships in July, which is out in Langley, B.C. That's the Canadian Track and Field Championship. So good luck to Jeremy. So he's just one of those folks who can be a mentor, someone to look up as a potential para-athlete. So on April 29th, the good folks at Parasport NL, they, they support the athletes in some 25 sports. They're going to host a track meet at the Fieldhouse to show off a bunch of the sports in an effort to make sure that para is well represented in the 2025 Canada Games, of course, coming to St. John's. So April 29th, if someone in your social circle or in your family is been long considering getting involved in para-athletics, April 29th at the Fieldhouse might be a great opportunity to get a look up close and personal as to what it's all about and maybe encourage you to be a participant, maybe even make the Canada Game Squad. Okay, we knew it was coming and here it is. So some 155,000 members of PSAC are now on strike. 47,000 of them are have been deemed essential, so they will be reporting to work. But there is something ironic about the fact that the striking workers do indeed have to present themselves, scan their barcode at a picket line, when at the exact same time they want remote work to be enshrined into their next contract. So a little bit of a disconnect right there. But anyway, 
There's 250 picket lines across the country. There's 18 picket lines here on the island. There's one in Labrador. And we heard Sarah Strickland report from Topsail Road, where they're picketing outside of uh, Minister Seamus O'Regan's office, that there's a big crowd of picketers and the general public driving by, barping their horn, giving the wave. So, you know, on day one of strikes, of course, the strikers will be quite boisterous and there will be some optimism about what they're doing, what they're trying to achieve. And the general public, until there's some halt or slowdown in the provision of services, which is inevitable when you've got over 100,000 workers that are not doing their job. So wherever you stand on it, we're welcoming your call today. The big questions for many that I've been receiving is whether or not some of the benefits checks, the pension checks that people rely on, are going to continue. We've been told that they will continue to flow. Will there be a slowdown or an interruption? We're not sure. We're trying to get confirmation, firm confirmation, from the Department of Finance, and we will indeed reach out to Minister O'Regan's office to get some clarity on that front because people rely on their checks and they cannot be delayed because of this job action. So what's on the line here? You know, one thing is about the remote work issue, and you know, you've heard me speak to it before, but of course it's wages. The wage issue, you know, Stats Canada has a couple of interesting numbers they've reported here that really don't jive with the things that I've been seeing and the people that I know. But anyway, here's what Stats Canada says. Unionized employees in 20, between 2019 and 2022 have seen an increase in their wages of some 9%. Non-unionized workers saw a 14% hike, unadjusted for inflation. Not something I'm familiar with, but anyway. Here's what's going on between PSAC and the federal government. The union's last wage proposal, or you can call it demand, is 4.5% per year for 21, 22, and 23. The last numbers we heard from Treasury Board was an increase of wages of 9% over three years. Different uh, numbers, not 333, but there's a different bump inside that three-year offer. So we'll see how long it lasts until there's some sort of compromise, some sort of agreed-upon tentative deal in the collective bargaining process, or whether or not if the government sees the slowdown have a massive impact on individual Canadians and businesses. Because when CRA is slowed down, of course, that has massive implications. So if you are waiting on your tax return, you might have to wait a little bit longer. So between immigration services and passports and operations at Service Canada and up and down the line, here we are. It is the amongst the largest strikes in Canadian history. The last big one like this was back in 1991. So there's obviously no end to the angles we can take on that particular front if you are so inclined. And, of course, we've been talking about the fishery. We always talk about the fishery, still a cornerstone industry in this province, value well in excess of a billion dollars when all things go according to plan. So you know the story. So at 2.20, the boats remain tied up. It's really, truly remarkable. Last year, banner year for the harvesters, of course, they landed about $750 million worth of crab. The lowest price they got last year was six fifteen. so compare that to two twenty, and you know the deal. So a lot of it is looking down the road to, you know, if you had a big year last year, you were probably were anticipating a very similar year this year, especially when the first numbers we heard was that the snow crab stock was in a pretty healthy range. And then there was an increase in the total allowable catch of uh, some 8.4%. But then, of course, when the price came to bear, not so great. So a couple of things. It really is going to be critically important to learn a hard lesson from this price-setting panel exercise this go-around. It doesn't work any longer for either side, I would suggest. So we've got to figure out a better process there. Also, curiously, the Premier says he's willing to speak with the FFAW, and I assume with the Association of Seafood Producers, about the prospect of shipping Newfoundland and Labrador crab to other provinces. 
Now, I'm not so sure how much more money they're going to get elsewhere. It seems to be fairly similarly priced. You know, maybe get around 3 bucks in some areas, which is a long way from $2.20 a pound. No question about it. So the Premier is willing to have that conversation. So if you're a harvester, processor, and this has an impact far and wide. I mean, just say, for instance, hypothetically, no snow crab gets harvested. That backs out 200 225 $250 million out of the harvesters, their families, the businesses they do business with. So it does have an impact, regardless if you have any investment personally in the fishery. Sticking with the Premier and some comments he made yesterday. So he says he's cautiously optimistic, and it's a step in the right direction. Based on the comments coming from CEO of Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, Jennifer Williams, on the Muskrat Falls project and the successful uh, tests at 700 megawatts. The 900 megawatt test won't take place till next winter when we'll know a whole lot more. We don't know whether or not the so-called newer version of the software will be in place by then, but that's the timelines that we do understand. So several times the Premier used those exact phrases yesterday. Cautiously optimistic and a step in the right direction. You know, it's probably worthwhile to not even consider the project commissioned until it's actually done. So, fair ball. You know, the Premier says they didn't inherit it. They've seen the new team, the leadership at Hydro, bring it to this stage. And I guess there is reason to be cautiously optimistic. But then, it's all about the rates. For most of us, unless you live along the river or you have the environmental leanings where that was your number one concern, for a lot of folks in the province, I'm guessing it's where the rates are going to go. And I did read an email this morning, and this thought still is in place for some people who are ratepayers in the province. The rates aren't set to double, but where we are going to go is that 12.2 cents per kilowatt hour that we pay today, it will automatically go, when final commissioning takes place, to 14.7%. And then every year thereafter, an increase of 2.25%. So we're not out of the woods. And the Premier also made reference to Jennifer Williams saying that the rate mitigation deal, they continue to hammer it out. He pretty much implied that it's done deal, no matter how we slice it. And just to remind folks, that was the last go-around at an attempt to control rates uh, at the 147 and 2.25% thereafter. So we have no idea what the final price tag is, which is going to be something that we have to consider with the final kilowatt-hour charge, right? So he made reference to the $5.2 billion deal struck between the province, Hydro, and the federal government. And again, around $3 billion, $3.2, that is new cash. Uh, based on revenues from uh, the Hibernia oil field, and then a billion-dollar loan and a billion-dollar extension to the federal loan guarantee. So the Premier is cautiously optimistic, but given the fact that it's been st uh, since 2012, and here we are, it was at $7.4 billion, and here we are, no idea what the number is. Last one we heard was, I think, $13.37 billion, but you know it has to have had increased since then. And in this most recent provincial budget, there was a transfer of $190 million to Hydro to help control the rates associated with Muskrat Falls, so we're still in the throes of it. All right, this is potentially, well, it's interesting, possibly troubling news for folks working anywhere directly or indirectly associated with the Terranova oil field. Okay, Suncor and their partners had been giving us updates and timelines for when the FPSO will resume production. You know, it's going to be around now, maybe in June, but they're not giving any further updates. So we know the FPSO has been back for a long time now, and now it finds itself in bull arm. The work done in Spain, which was initially was supposed to take seven months, took 13 months. Newfoundlanders and Labradorians traveled from this province to Spain to work in that dockyard on the project, and now that has been floated back. 
It looks like some of the work done in Spain nowhere near up to grade. Some work needs to be redone and additional work needs to be completed. So we have no earthly idea exactly when that is that, that oil field will resume production. There was a late in the day ownership shakeup. And then remember, we are involved in this resumption. They say it will extend the life of the oil field by some 10 years and 80 million barrels of oil. But here's the numbers once again that me and you are intimately involved in with getting that project back on track or to see a resumption of production. So the ownership shakeup was part of it, but $200 million of government money to Suncor and its partners. And of course, there was a royalty relief negotiated that we will not receive some $300 million, is one of the estimates, $300 million in royalties throughout the lifetime, the lifespan of the oil field. So $500 million in essence, we're in. I don't know, and I'm not sure anybody's ever even asked the question, but now we will, is with the $200 million, were there any timelines associated with that? Was there a firm commitment that regardless of costs incurred by Suncorn's partners, that the Terra Nova will indeed go back out and continue producing? So we're in, and there's no updates now being av made available by Suncor regarding that project. And of course, it's all quiet on the Western Front regarding Beta Nord, Equinor, the government, and the negotiations therein. If you want to take that on, you know what to do. All right, this story is giving me... It's really concerning. So we have big daycare questions. But the story that we were talking about yesterday and spoke with Leah Farrell from the Autism Society about autistic children in particular who have been discharged, lost their spot at daycares. The story goes down to say there's things like they didn't have an inclusion worker, a support worker for when and if one child needs additional help while at daycare. And the story gets really heartbreaking when we hear from some of these families, and I've been dealing with one family via email, is that they say their child was advancing leaps and bounds with socialization skills, verbal skills, and the rest, and now all of a sudden have lost their spot. It goes on to have a fairly discriminatory tone as well when some families are saying that they've called around and some daycares have simply said because of the diagnosis of autism, they will not accept that child on their wait list. So this is a problem. One family's gone to the government, gone to the Human Rights Commission, and we've just gone down that road with how we handle children in early childhood education and or in school with supports. If we're going to have an inclusive model as part of our education system, and I think we shouldn't include daycare and early childhood education in that same envelope. So being turned away simply because you have a diagnosis of autism is not good. So daycare is a big conversation, but that one particular one, that kind of dogged me all night last night, rolling around in bed thinking about those families and what this impact is, because you know the deal. If you can't find a spot, what do you do? Someone has to quit their job? That sounds like a pretty dastardly outcome when you can't find access to daycare or leave the province, which is bad for all of us. So anyway, looks like the province has extended some of the incentives for the come-home year-related matter and for healthcare professionals. Okay, apparently some 79 people have accepted offers through those incentives. That adds up to uh, over $5 million worth of contracts. They're now extending the program to midwives, registered midwives. We really thought an announcement a few years ago regarding midwives, particularly in starting in Gander, was going to be some additional support for pregnant women and their families, but it's never really gotten anywhere. So I guess the government has acknowledged that because midwives can play an extremely important role throughout the course of a pregnancy and delivery and aftercare. 
So they've extended to registered midwives. They are also going to receive uh, anyone who has uh, ties to the province $50,000 incentive. And if you don't have any ties, period, now can receive $25,000 in incentive, specifically for radiation therapists. That increased to $60,000 for those with ties to the province and $30,000 for those. In all cases, it's a three-year uh, three-year return in-service agreement. So they've extended. It seems to have worked at least for 79 healthcare pros. But I think it was interesting, and it just sort of waltzed through it, the fact that it's now registered midwives. Because, again, we can talk about family doctors, registered nurses, and all the rest, and it's all important. But the midwife, it's interesting that that's now been included. All right, story from the courts. We're, I guess, awaiting official confirmation today. But various sources have told us, and I've been told directly, that the Court of Appeals has rejected Douglas Snellgrove's appeal of his four-year conviction. So convicted rapist Douglas Snellgrove is going to prison. Went through three trials, and now this appeal, there's one more step that they can take to go all the way to Supreme Court of Canada. And you know the story, and there's not only Snellgrove. There's been other uh, police officers accused of nefarious acts of sexual uh, interference, sexual assault. So that story's not over, but convicted rapist Snellgrove looks like he is going to prison. All right, if you're a Rogers Telecom customer and you don't have a package that covers long-distance calls to the United States, huge increase coming right away. They were charging you 55 cents a minute. It's now going to be a buck. Not dissimilar to the other in the big three world, and we do know, and we can take on the telecom conversation because we just pay too much, but be aware, unless you add on one of those packages for the tune of $7 or $10 a month to cover off your calls, maybe you have loved ones or friends or someone living south of the border, but those fees are going up dramatically today, so be aware. And a piece of good news before we get to your calls. Really pleased to see over the weekend that Paul Pope was honored and awarded posthumously by the Academy of Canadian Cinema and Television. So he was given the Canadian Screen Awards Board of Directors Tribute Award. He was a giant in the business, not just here in this province, but in this country. And so it was really quite nice to see the cast, the putts, and the wrecks, of which he was the driving force behind, present the award to his wifely supporter. So congratulations, Paul Pope. He was a friend of mine, and it's a a serious loss in the TV and film world here in the province and country. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That only works when you call. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, uh, pay equity legislation, Bill 3, has been in, in, in effect pardon me, since October. But between the Federation of Labor and uh, the Equal Pay Coalition in Ontario, they've come up with some recommendations. And I'm sure there'll be some insight offered by our guest joining us on line number two this morning. She's a labor advocate. That's Elise Stewart. Good morning, Elise. You're on the air. Good, Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How about you? Oh, I'm doing pretty good, thanks. So we've heard from Jessica McCormick at the Federation of Labor and others about the legislation, suggesting that it needs to be revamped. There were some things not considered and impacted by this Bill 3. Your takeaway? You know, Patty, I was actually thinking back to one of the last times that I was uh, chatting to you folks, and it was in the summertime, and it was when I found out that the committee didn't meet a single time in 2021 or 2020, so it had been like three years since the like inter- interdepartmental committee had met. 
so this kind of is coming on the heels of that. And I'm thinking, well, it makes sense why this has fallen so short because they spent three years not talking about it. So a lot of the issues that are coming forward with this legislation, and I won't repeat, um, the amazing folks you've had talking about, like Jess McCormick, uh, the Status of Women, has done lots of um, work on this. It's just that it falls so remarkably short of being the legislation that it needs to be to have teeth, to actually, you know, have change in our communities, have change in our workplaces. Um, one of the biggest things that I know has come forward is that it's only for public sector workers, right? So we're we're missing this like vast swath of of workers in this city and in this province that are protected. Uh, so that's one of the you know the big thing that's come out since this legislation came forward, and. You know, a lot of what the issues that I think stakeholders have is that they weren't brought into the conversation. So in October, you mentioned, you know, we knew that this pay legislation was coming forward. Um, April 1st, it came into actual implementation. And then April 23rd, after April 1st, um, they're going to have consultations on the regulation part of the legislation. So it's kind of like the toothpaste at this point is out of the tube with the legislation. So are we going to have to go back and how are we going to change to make sure that it actually will you know, be a positive part of this province's legislation and do actual good and change uh, the issues that we're having around pay equity. How would it work for to incorporate the private sector? Would there need to be some sort of agency created for monitoring and oversight and enforcement? Because it's a little trickier to deal with the private sector than mm-hmm. it is with the public sector because government has the controls. Government has the numbers right there in front mm-hmm. of them and can ensure the legislation is being adhered to throughout the ABCs, the, the, the government itself, yeah. the agencies, boards, and uh, Crown Corp. So how does it work with the private sector? Yeah, I mean, Pat, I think that's, those are great questions that could have been answered with, if they had actual stakeholder review of this legislation. If you brought forward, you know, public sector interests, if you brought the union to the table, you brought um, the many amazing organizations that do advocacy work on pay equity and uh, women's advocacy work to figure those things out so that we aren't at this point, again, trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube, figuring out how we make this legislation actually work for people in this province. So you do have those boards and commissions. You have, um, you know, you could use, I know for this one, the Labor Relations Board will actually have some sort of oversight if a complaint comes forward. Uh, you know, it's going to go back and forth. There's going to be lots of different avenues that you can go through until you actually get, uh, I guess it's a $25,000 fine or a $1,000 fine. Um, regardless of that, there are lots of ways to make sure that that could have happened um, before we're at this point where, you know, we're kind of have to go back in time to figure this out. How do you... How do you deal? I don't know if legislation can even cover because some of the disparity between what women earn and what men earn does indeed include some women-dominated areas that are very low pay, whether it be in home care or early childhood educators or what have you. Retail, maybe, you can add into it. So how do you even address that? I don't even know if there's any legislation that could be created to deal with that unless we're talking about living wage or basic income or Mm -hmm. raising the minimum wage Mm -hmm. because if you have a female-dominated industry, then that's going to have some impact on the disparity between men and women and what they earn. Yeah, I mean, for the the complex issue of pay equity, and I know a lot of folks ask this question, like, what do we mean when we say pay equity? What does that actually mean? Um, it's a lot of different things that go into not just the dollar for dollar that women make versus men or, or marginalized folks versus uh, a dominated workforce by men. Uh, it is systemic, right? We have to look at care work. How do we value care work? How do we value work that's predominantly done by uh, women? How do we make sure we're catching those up? And, you know, in some ways, I think that is happening. We're seeing the pressure on healthcare. We're seeing the pressure certainly on childcare to make sure the ECEs are getting more than you know, $14 an hour so that we can get people working in these industries and so we can get, you know, that $10 a day childcare that still seems a little far off for a lot of folks so we can make sure that those 
um, are properly valued as they should be. So that's certainly part and parcel um, because a lot of times we talk about pay equity, it's equal pay for equal work. That's fine if you and I are doing the exact same job, but in workplaces that are dominated by women, we see that they're not valued properly. So part of pay equity you know, legislation can can certainly address that in terms of how do we, you know, there's a lot of research that's going to be done in those areas. There's ways that you can implement certain, uh, I guess, other legislative pieces to address that care work piece and healthcare. Now, healthcare and teaching, for instance, like those are public sector as well. So there will be some coverage by that. But certainly it has to be a lot more than just legislation. But legislation has to be that important piece. And if our legislation isn't even enough to stretch the surface, uh, of what needs to be addressed with pay equity, well, then it seems like we're always going to be behind the eight ball. I mean, there are places we can look at. We can look at Ontario. We can look at Quebec. We can look at the federal government, who in 2021 put in pay equity uh, legislation that has a lot more teeth to it to try and model on that. But again, I think if we had had this conversation, the three years that no conversations were happening, that would have been a great time to do it. Uh, in the months that we've had since that came out uh, and had everybody at the table and kind of hammered this out and really got to somewhere where everybody was feeling like we were making ground. But if you have so many organizations, including the Federation Labor, including Status Women, coming out and saying, this is not enough, like we have missed the mark, well, then we should go back and we should do it right. And we should make sure that we're creating something that isn't going to be, you know, uh, another 10 years of trying to pick it apart and add regulations and add amendments because it wasn't good enough in the first place. And for, for those who assert that it is not a thing, is that there's no workplace where a woman with uh, equal education and seniority and background and all the rest of it mm-hmm. that doesn't get paid the same as their male counterpart. We mm-hmm. have an example right here at Newfoundland Labrador Hydro. Someone, mm-hmm. a, a lady in a management position, she has taken it to court. She says, I wasn't getting paid mm-hmm. the same as my male counterparts, yeah. and consequently, here we go. And there's examples right across the country. So there, I guarantee you there's people saying or yelling at the radio, it's not even a thing, but it is a thing. And it's a thing that has to be addressed, even if we just talk, mm-hmm. talk about uh, fairness, even if just that's yeah. the benchmark then pay transparency yeah pay transparency is, is another important part that needs to be included in these amendments which the federation of labor talked to so um that's a big part of it and i know patty for you and i both like i'm sure people yell at the radio all the time when i'm speaking that's okay that means that they're listening and hopefully there's something that's actually going to happen but you know there's lots of ways that we uh, and i've seen that firsthand it's that you know you can change a job title so that there's you know I'm a coordinator instead of a, you know, um, I add that extra layer, even though I'm doing the same work, but if somebody else is doing it, I'm paying them more. So having all of that out in the open. So pay transparency is why that's a big part of what folks are calling for. Because, you know, we want to see it all on the table. We want to see what everybody's making. We want to make sure that everything's out in the open. Because, you know, um, Enohadro is a public is public sector and it's still happening there. So there's so many different nuances that need to be addressed. And again, the legislation is one piece. Uh, pay transparency is another piece. Um, everything has to come into this larger conversation. But again, if the legislation is already so far behind, I fear that we are going to be another decade, another generation of even getting close to where we need to be. I was, that was the exact question I was going to ask is about how we deem or how we label a job because that can be extremely tricky. People come up with very creative approaches to how to label or to designate one employer or another. They might have very similar, if not exactly the same, uh, job tasks and job description, but we call them one thing. And consequently, mm-hmm. they find that to be the loophole, which I think is probably the trickiest part, especially in the private sector. I don't know why it makes me think of the sunshine list, which I, mm-hmm. of course, I'm curious <laughs> like everyone else. I go through and it's, oh, my God, that person makes that much. But we never get a job description. We don't know how long they've been on the job. We don't no. even know what they do. We just no. get a number. 
Exactly. And I see, you know, everybody's been there where it's like you're maybe you're at a job, you're at a workplace, and you're like, wow, seems like I'm doing the exact same thing as this person beside me. But I know for a fact that they're making, you know, more money than me. So why is that? And you can get around it in lots of different ways. You're, you know, you call, like I said, you could be like, I'm the coordinator. Well, I'm the assistant coordinator. And the assistant coordinator who does the same amount of work is getting paid less than the coordinator. So there's so many different ways to do that. Um, and it's certainly done a lot in the private sector. The other big part, Patty, I do want to mention is that for this legislation, it doesn't apply to contract workers. So contract workers who are precarious, that's what happens a lot, right? You're on there for like a mat leave replacement. You're there for a sick leave replacement. So you're kind of just bounced in and you're supposed to accept, you know, whatever number they give you, that's what it is because you're not usually protected by a collective agreement or anything. You're just, you know, you take this term contract to effort last. Well, that's a place where you're seeing a lot of that happen, um, where you're coming in and getting those lesser amounts and usually less than your meal counterpart. So certainly there's so many different areas where we can see that change and where that needs to happen. At least appreciate your time this morning. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much, Patty. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, they, there's always that suggestion that, you know, it's not even a real thing. But in many corners, it absolutely is a real thing. And we've got a fine example just right here in our Crown Corporation, that is NL Hydro. There are stories around the country. Now, without question, inside the pay disparity issue is female-dominated industries that simply are low-paying jobs. And that's not a default. It's just... That's the way it is. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Reg is in the queue to talk about the search for doctors out in Bonavista. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. Uh, just a friendly reminder that if it's a topic that I don't bring up doesn't mean we don't want to talk about it. We can talk about whatever you want to talk about. Two specifics in the emails that I read during that break. One was regarding the settlement between Fox News and the Minion voting machines yesterday. Sure, we can take that on. And then the second one was the whole issue regarding the Twitter label now been attached to CBC and uh, Radio Canada about being government funded. So those are two interesting conversations that we absolutely can have. So again, doesn't matter what I bring up. Whatever you want to talk about is exactly what we're going to talk about. Let's go to line number one. Reg, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Morning How to you. How are you? Excellent. Thanks to you. Okay. Uh, I'm uh, just calling there now to uh, just give you a little update on the doctor situation in Bonavista. Uh, about a month ago, I, I think it was pretty close to exact, almost exactly a month ago, the minister announced that we had, uh, there were two doctors selling for Bonavista. Yep. And then a little while after, when uh, I think it was when they had the news conference about uh, the nurses taking on extra duties, he, he referenced that uh, they had uh, uh acquired a doctor from Ireland who would also be coming to Bonavista. Uh, so about uh, a week ago now, we've heard some rumblings around and, and some talk that actually those doctors, the two doctors that were supposedly signed, are not signed. And so uh, within the last couple of days, we have confirmed from uh, uh, uh officials with uh, the new provincial health authority that those doctors are actually not signed that's news so, to me i know and it was news to us and uh, i mean apparently there's still some uh, negotiations going on there and there's some things not settled right so i we're very disturbed about this fact because i mean uh I'll give the minister a benefit of a doubt. I mean, uh, where, where, is, where did he get his information? Uh, I mean, he made the announcement that they were selling. 
So all of a sudden, they're not selling. So when, when during this uh, month break, uh, month period, did those doctors become on-zone? You know? It's an excellent question that I will follow up on because if people remember, the issue regarding the doc- lack of a doctor in Bonavista has had major impact, specifically with the closure of the emergency room and emergency services. So the yeah. government floated out pretty hefty incentives to go to Bonavista or New West Valley, $200,000. So that's a big number uh, that we thought two doctors said, that's enough for me. And I thought that was a done deal, case closed, contract signed, but apparently not, now that you told me this much. No, apparently not. It's not a done deal. And, I mean, it's time for somebody to come clean here, the minister or uh, the new health authority or whatever, and explain to the people of the, of the residents of this area what exactly is going on. I mean, because we're still having closures at ER. Uh, we had one there last weekend, and it looks like we got some coming up now towards the end of the month. And, I mean, they're still scrambling to get locums for May month, I think. So... It's obvious that it's not a donkey. And I know that if you, like when they signed the doctors, they said they signed the doctors a month ago. Well, we knew there was going to be delays. I mean, the doctor just can't up and leave one job and go to another and bang. It's not going to happen overnight. We know right. that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, now a month has gone past and we, we, we find out now they haven't even signed. Right? Yeah, I'll get confirmation or clarification from the department. Specifically, like if you're a doctor coming from Ireland, there are some credential issues that have to be addressed before you can uh, set up shop and practice in Bonavista. So that was always going to be some type of delay, even though the province says that they're working towards smoothing that process out. And there's been a move now for Atlantic Canadian doctors and other healthcare professionals to move freely without any issues with the college and or the medical association. So those are good things. But this is disappointing news that you're telling me those two doctors are not well, actually confirmed. I'll figure. I'll try to figure it out. And I mean, we've tried to get some information from uh, well, Eastern Health at that time or whatever before they changed over and stuff about actually if if those doctors when they, when they when they announced that they had signed two doctors, we sent off some emails as to whether they were ER doctors or primary care or a combination because a lot of people were asking. So okay, what does this mean for for the emergency room or whatever? And we. Everything basically, we haven't, we, we can't get a reply, right? Which is strange. I don't know. Well, yeah, uh, just. Uh, well, there's obviously some some questions there needs to be answered. Yeah, we'll see if we can get answers for you and the residents uh, and the area. So you made reference to the announcement of expanding the scope of practice practice for registered nurses. What did that have to do with this particular doctor question? Well, at that news conference, uh, the minister, uh, that's when he made the announcement that they had. Uh, 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 recruited a doctor from Ireland who was going to come to Bonavista over and above the other two that they announced a month ago, right? Okay. During that news conference, he, he, he made that announcement. All right, yeah, I was just making sure I understood the yeah. relationship that you were talking about. Okay, we'll see if we can't get uh, some information from the department or the minister's office directly to see exactly what the status is because they did indeed release some numbers that I, I assume we can just take for granted that they are accurate you know whether it become home year incentives and some 5.1 or 5.6 million dollars associated with the 79 contract so that's a really you know that's not a doesn't sound like a number plucked out of thin air 79 no. so i will follow up and see what we can uh, get yeah. going here reg i don't think i mean it's an actual issue about the, the actual no- money they announced uh, uh, there, there must be something you know it's, it's something with the actual contracts i guess negotiations because i mean there's other things 
besides money, actually. Of course, and maybe there's just some sort of credential holdup or someone wrapping up their practice on an appropriate timeline before they move to Bonavista. But I'll get as much information as I can as soon as I can. Right on, thanks. Thanks, Rage. Appreciate it. All the best. You have a good day. You too. Okay, bye. Uh, and the registered nurses issue is still not settled yet, I don't imagine. You know, the college representing registered nurses has a different take on it than the actual uh, registered nurses union. And we, just very quickly, the key there was the ability to write prescriptions, uh, referrals to specialists, diagnostic imaging, lab testing could be ordered by a registered nurse. But only if, especially on the uh, prescription side, only if they take on the year worth of training in three different modules because their concern there is, is this going to be on the job? Are they going to have to take time away from the floor? What's the supervision going to look like? And uh, I guess ultimately, if they take on the extra tasks, are they're going to get paid more. So none of those things are really carefully understood at this moment in time. I would imagine many registered nurses, you know, unless you're in specialized care or you're in rural parts of the province where this is going to be a real uh, benefit to you and to the, the your patients. But if you're not in that predicament, or pardon me, that situation, and you're not going to get paid more, I'm not so sure how many of them are going to take it on. Uh, let's go to line number three. Ed, you're on the air. Good day, Patty. How are you today? Best kind, you. I was okay until I actually went up on Empire Avenue and Tops of Road after with all these strikes going on. What happened? Unfortunately, somebody is going to get seriously hurt or injured or even killed. Uh, unfortunately, these people, whoever is on strike, is, is are, they're not acting like adults by any particular means. Well, what did they're you see? At, I'm, walk, I'm, I'm driving down the road, and next thing I know, somebody's crossing the crosswalk in, on Tops of Road, didn't put the light on. Pan, you know, traffic's going to have to panic. panic. They're, they're, in, they're on the side of the road. They're not on the sidewalk. Some of them are not even on the sidewalk. They're out in the middle, on the side of the road, right, where the traffic is to. On Empire Avenue, they're walking in traffic. They're walking on the road itself. They're walking across the street. There's not even a crosswalk. They, on Empire Avenue, they cross past the crosswalk, past the crosswalk, and then did a jaywalk across the middle of the street. Cars had to stop for them. Like, that's what crosswalks are for, right? If, if these are all adults, these guys should be paying attention to what they're doing. They've got to stay on the sidewalk or somebody's going to get hit by a car. Somebody's going to get seriously hurt or injured. Yeah, I mean, right. we can only hope that doesn't happen. I'm sure, you know, on day one or the early days of job actions, strikes or lockouts, is people are a bit rambunctious, you know, and they might be a little bit boisterous and possibly a little bit reckless. So please, if you are a striking member of PESAC, uh, be safe and stay out of the uh, off the roads and out of harm's way and for the motoring public be aware that there's some 18 picket lines here on the island another one in labrador with these striking workers so keep your eyes peeled but please do indeed if you are out there picketing just get back into the sidewalk around the parking lots or wherever the case may be and not on the road fair enough ed yeah and another thing too there's a guy up there on empire avenue and he got an aluminum pole, or it looks like an aluminum pole, with a flag on it, right? Union flag. And he's swinging it out in the road from the sidewalk. That's pretty darn intimidating. I was like, what the heck's he doing? Swinging the flag in the road. Not, not you know, just waving back. Well, I mean swinging it in the road. Okay, what kind, what, what flag was it? Was it a PSAC I, I, flag? I don't know. It was, it was definitely a union flag, that's for sure. I don't know why it was actually set on it, because, I mean, you know, the thing is swinging back and forth. 
I mean, he's not swinging and back and forth like straight up. He's swinging it out in traffic, right? So you got a good three feet swinging out into the road, right? Anyway, hopefully that's pretty intimidating when it's an aluminum pole, and you can tell it's an aluminum pole. Okay. Well, hopefully that gets knocked off as well. Yeah, because I mean, this is like crazy. I mean, yeah, they're on strike. Okay, fine. The government's not listening. Well, unfortunately, the government hasn't been listening to anybody for the past three years, haven't they? I would not be surprised if this is the way the government is actually going to get rid of these people because they did say they were going to reduce the actual employees in some way. Don't be surprised. This is the way they're going to do it. What does that I mean? Would be surprised. What does that mean? Well, the finance minister said they were going to reduce employees. This is probably one of their good ways to do it. Is so how? I wouldn't be surprised. Not hire them back. Not do a contract. Well, I mean, there has been a reduction of some 3,900 federal government employees since September of last year. If we are talking about right-sizing and people that were hired because of some of the COVID-related or pandemic-related programs that were brought to bear, if we no longer need them, then we should no longer hire them. Well, well, look at this way. If the government don't listen to the public, why are they going to listen to their employees? (laughs) Appreciate the time, Ed. Thank you. Have a good day. And hopefully nobody's going to get hurt up there doing the foolishness they're doing up there now. I hope they they, they smarten up and pick it correctly as it should be in a safe manner. Thanks for the time, Ed. Appreciate it. Have a good day. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, regardless if you're onside or offside or for or against anything regarding the strike, please do indeed, you know, just stay off the road it's for your own safety you want me to take another one right here dave okay let's go line number four reg you're on the air or no caller you're on the air yes uh hello petty um you had a guy on there yeah he was talking about the bond of this to hospital that they said we had two doctors here yes we did we had a doctor here for two weeks came down from ontario to, and was taking phone calls so you were initially Telling the doctor over the phone what you were doing, what was wrong with you, and he pulled up your, well, I'll call it an account, because that's basically what it is. If you're getting multiple medications and stuff like that, he's pulling up your account, and he sees that uh, you're taking this, you're taking that, you're taking this over a period of such and such a time. So he's going to continue on with this. He's going to say, okay, what pharmacy are you with? And then he's going to call the pharmacy and get that done. That was for two weeks. He's gone back to Ontario. He said he is he definitely 100% coming back here, but he has a practice in Ontario. That he, I guess he's got to get another doctor to fill in for him or he got to shut down whatever he's doing. But he is coming here to Bonavista. Vista. Oh, right. And he is, he is going to 100% sign on for at least one year. He's got to sign for one year, period. They're going to just give him contract for one year. If he likes it here... And he said he did like it here, but he's going to sign that contract for one year. Then they're going to sign the contract to stay for four years. That was the last that we know of. The phone in the, into the hospital in there and they say, uh, sorry, we don't have a doctor on call today. Uh, actually, that's what we have, just emergencies only, right? How can I help you? And you explain, okay, I'm out of medication. I need medication. Okay, well, we'll do a call back for you. So I'm getting a call from somebody in St. John's, uh, could be up in, well, within the Eastern eastern Board, of, we'll say, Eastern Health. And they are the ones that's calling us 
and seeing our files, because it's in Eastern Health, all throughout from here to Bureau and everywhere. So the doctors are saying, yeah, I don't see anything wrong with that. I'll get that prescription down to you. What pharmacy are you with? I sit, tell the pharmacy what it was, have it filled, and it's done the next day or the day after, well, depending on how much they have to do at the pharmacy, because they got faxes coming in. And if you're taking a, a narcotic or something like that, it has to be done on a separate pad. So that is the issue with the doctors. They're having problems with that. But here in Bonavista, so far, we only had one death, and that was on ambulance because the ER was closed, and he was directed to go to Clarenville. And our heart and sympathy to the family goes out to them. But uh, they, they had no choice. The ER was closed. When the ambulance comes and shows up, somebody's there to meet you, see the person, no, go on Clarenville. So they, he was up in Clarenville, and he was DOA. That was it. He was marked in as DOA. Now, the cause of it, they blamed it. Like, if, it, if he got into the hospital to actually physically see that doctor and been treated that day in the hospital, you know, the family still blames the system. And in this system, I mean the hospital system, the government system, and there's the initial signing fees that the government was going to dole out. Yes, he's, this guy was talking to you earlier there, and he said, was guaranteed to give you $100,000. Yes, I'm satisfied with $100,000. That sounds good. Okay, we're going to sign that for one year. He'll come down here and he'll work for one year and $100,000. Then he realized the prices of everything is sky high. He can't meet ends meet. At the end of the year, he's gone. Somebody else is here. I don't know if doctors are unable to make ends meet, but I, I think I get your point. So he yeah. was here on a locum, but he's coming back for sure. He said he is returning to sign a full-time one-year contract to live and work in Bonavista. Well, kudos go out to, I had to say it, the, the former mayor, Betty Fitzgerald. She has been in contact with do- trying to get doctors here. She's worked on boards for years with the hospital and the auxiliary and so on and so forth, and many community events and such such in Bonavis itself. So kudos go out to her and thank her very much for everything that she's done and still doing, still going. And uh, she's a retired mayor. So God bless you, uh, Madam Betty Fitzgerald. And uh, I would like to say thank you for everything that you've done, especially with the hospital because we've got a, a lot of things in that hospital in there that people don't know about that they can avail of. If they go in to see the doctor, if you can actually get in to see the doctor, I should have said, pardon me, then the doctor can say, yeah, I, well, we need to send you to, to physiotherapy to take care of this. Right. So we have this physiotherapy in the hospital. There is a physiotherapist in here three times a week, we'll say. That's just a spitballing here. I don't know what their schedules are or anything like that and what we have in here in the hospital. But when you call in, you get the main number, just like I call the VOCM, I'll get the main desk and talk to Dave and tell Dave what I want. And right. just help. But yeah, I'm a petty. And uh, right now, the hospital system is definitely going to go downhill very, very fast. If they do not recruit, and I mean recruit and this guy says, I'm going to stay here work, work from 9 o'clock in the morning until 5 o'clock in the evening. I know it's tedious. 
and you're dealing with all kinds of symptoms and stuff like that and all kinds of diseases. And, well, that's, and, of course, what doctors do, though, so it wouldn't be any different here or there. Uh, I've got to get off to the break, caller. Last thoughts to you quickly before I have to go. Well, I would say that, that we still have a wonderful hospital here in Bonavista, wonderful staff. It's only a matter of... Uh, one rotten thing, one rotten egg in the in the case for you to throw it out. We'll put it that way. But our hospital is running pretty good, and the ambulances are still going every day. We're steady going with them. So uh, uh, kudos go to viewers as well. Appreciate the for, time this morning. Thanks for the call. Thank you very much, Patty, for time on the air. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, let's go and take that break. Uh, when we come back, tons of time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five. Caller, you're on the air. Hello, Paddy. Hello. Hi, how are you this morning? I couldn't be better. How about you? That's good, but you're looking good in here. <laughs> Feeling good. And you're, yeah, and you're doing a good job. Thank you. Paddy, I got the phone, iPhone in the, the give a rose, to head, throw the rose to my family doctor. Uh, about three weeks ago, we had a stormy day. And I had an appointment in that evening to see my family doctor, and I couldn't make it. <clears throat> and the appointment time come, and I wasn't there showing up. And by and by, the phone rang, and I answered the phone. He said, is this you? I said, yes, that's me. He said, well, he said, how come you never come in to your appointment? I said, well, doctor, it was too stormy. You couldn't see a hand before you. And the roads were slippery, and I couldn't get there. Okay, he said, I'll make another appointment for you. So anyway, the next morning, I think it was, the phone rang. And then uh, this was his secretary. said, uh, I'll get an appointment for you uh, next week at such a time, right? So I'm going to throw the rose to her, God love her. So that's two roses this morning for two people in the health care. Okay. And that's, that's the kind of doctor that you want. I mean, you got to give doctors credit for that, and 110% credit, because he's a good doctor. Well, I'm glad to hear you're getting that type of yes, treatment. Sir. That's exactly yep. what's required, no doubt. That's right. He's a good doctor, and and, and he, had, he had sent enough to phone and made another appointment for me. Good. And that's, that's the kind of doctor you want. Yeah, and it deserves the bouquet that you're throwing this morning. Fair enough, caller. Yes, I'm, glad you, I'm glad it worked. Yeah, it worked, and, and I got another appointment now next week with the same doctor. And I got one, I got another one, I got one with the surgeon next week, too. So, that's two or three more of them up there, and it's, uh, they're looking after me. So, that's the kind of people you want. And how you doing? How you feeling? Okay. Oh, I'm doing very good, boy. Good, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. And, uh, okay. like you said, you're doing a good job, and keep up your good work. And all the best, and have a good weekend. You take great care of yourself. Thank you. You too, buddy. Okay, man. You, yeah. Right. Okay. Bye-bye. Uh, right. Let's go ahead and take a break for the news. When we come back, we're going to get an update from a doctor who called last week about just how frequently he's being audited by MCP. That's Dr. James Westhazen. And then we're going to talk to Beverly about healthcare as well. And then lots of time for you, whatever you want to talk about. Let's go. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, we're awaiting Game 3 of the Herder, which is going to kick off this weekend up in Mobile at the Kenny Williams Arena. Join us on line number two is the head coach of the Deer Lake Red Wings. That's Darren Langdon. Good morning, Darren. You're on the air. How are you doing today, Patty? Best kind. How about you? 
All good here. There was a thought going into this Herder series that the Southern Shore Breakers were going to make easy work of the Deer Lake Red Wings, but a 4-1 game and a 4-3 game, what did you learn about your team? Yeah, I think we had a good team, Patty, uh, all year. I mean, uh, we picked up a couple from Cornerbrook, two or three, and they helped out a lot. But uh, we knew Southern Shore were tough. I mean, anyone comes at the East League are pretty good. they got a lot of players to choose from. But, uh, I mean, we were in every game, or the boat games here. I think we outshot them the first game by a couple, and then the second game we had like 50 shots. But uh, they actually had their third stringer in, and he played amazing. And, uh, you know, a couple of breaks either way. I thought the game, uh, you know, could have been anybody's. And, uh you know, it's going to be tough to get a couple of games out on the southern shore because I know their crowd is going to be crazy. But, uh, you know, we're up for it, and I think we could uh, pull off a couple of wins and get back to Deer Lake. Uh, what kind of crowd support have you seen throughout this season out in the West Coast? Because the pitchers show that the crowds are out there and they're really pumped for the team, the supportive of the Red Wings. So the standing room only about an hour before puck drop on Friday night. Yeah, I mean, it was, I think, like 14, 1,500. Uh, that's how, I mean, it only sits 900, so everyone else is standing around. And all year's been good. I mean, the first two games we played in Cornerbrook, they had over 3,000 people. I mean, that's a lot for uh, for the West Coast League. And just people were excited to get it back after, you know, two or three years with uh, nothing. And pretty well every game in, in Deer Lake, Cornerbrook, and uh, Port of Bass when we went there were pretty well, you know, full houses. So it's exciting. The fans are loving it. And this series, I must say, that the two, if people didn't like the two games, Friday and Saturday night, they, they don't really like hockey because they were great games to watch. There was good atmosphere, you know, the music. Everybody was everybody was jumping. And you had some Southern Shore fans there, uh, you know, young kids that uh, – we're playing tournaments. My buddy Ray Dalton's dirt, dirt kids were playing in Cornerbrook. They're from the Southern Shore. So they all came up and watched, and, you know, it was exciting when you get uh, good hockey like that, and the fans were really into it. What's it going to take for the Red Wings? What are the keys to get a couple of wins up the shore? Uh, stay disciplined. I mean, they're very disciplined. And, uh, you know, when we go to St. John's, sometimes refing could be an issue, but hopefully it's uh, it hopefully is not uh, – and we stay at the box. I mean, we got to be physical. I think the, I don't know how the league is out there, but someone said it's not as physical as we, they are used to. So we got to keep pounding them. And uh, you know, the more you hit, uh, the tireder they gets, and uh, the better it is for us. Yeah, it starts to show. Uh, take its toll on the teams in third periods for sure. Uh, just a couple of quick questions about the NHL playoffs. We're all cozied up for the playoff action now. So you played on a bunch of teams that are in the playoffs: the Rangers, Carolina, and the Devils. I know you only played maybe 14, 15, 20 games for the Devils, but the Rangers yeah. are stacked with a big win in game one, over said Devils 5-1. Carolina's got a really stout team in the East. Who are you pulling for? Yeah, I, just, I mean, I, I go, I get to go down to New York a lot, you know, four or five times a year with the, doing some stuff for the Rangers, so, and that's the team I was with, the Lions, so I definitely pull for them, but I mean, it's nice to see Jersey there with Mercer and you know, you got Colorado losing last night with Newhook. I mean, a big loss. I'd done a pool Monday night, and I don't think anybody picked a, picked a Seattle player in their pool. So, uh, <laughs> you know, there's some upsets. And, 
with the parity in the league, I mean, anybody can win. I know they say Boston's favored, but uh, and Edmonton, but like you know, anybody can win in the, the league these days for sure. Hundred percent in the East is. But ex- Boston do Boston do look good, no doubt about that. Well, it's going to be tough to beat them in a seven game series. That's for bloody well sure. After the regular season they had, but the playoffs, I mean, everything goes by the wayside. Doesn't matter if you won the President's Trophy or not. It's uh, everything's on the line. It's good to have you on the show this morning, Darren. Uh, safe travels over to the Southern Shore and good luck. No trouble, Paddy. Thank you very much. All the best. Bye-bye. That's Darren Langdon, fine fellow to have coaching your senior hockey team. I think I remember the numbers correctly. So Langdon played over 500 games in the National Hockey League, had over 1,200 minutes in penalties, and to a man, one of the toughest hombres in the league for all his years playing in the National Hockey League. Okay, let's get an update about the MCP artist from our guest on line number one. That's Dr. James Westhazen. Dr. Westhazen, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you doing? That's kind, sir. I think I got the pronunciation a little bit closer. Yeah, you're, you're getting better. The more I call back, I think the better you'll get at it. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the time, uh, Doctor. So what's the update? Well, um, oh, before we get to the update, sure. just very uh, quickly set the stage for the conversation that we last had about the frequency of uh, audits. Well, we were talking about um, chronic disease management, and just to, I was just listening a little bit earlier to the gentleman who called in from Bonavista, um, talking about all the people in Bonavista only being able to get virtual calls. So you have someone calling, and, and that's fine, you know, calling and giving them prescriptions and so on, and, but those visits are usually, you know, 90 seconds or three minutes or four minutes. Whereas when I do a chronic disease management uh, visit, which is an in-person visit in the office, I actually spend 15 minutes with the patient in the office. You know, you get to look at them, you look at the demeanor, how are they feeling, you look at the color of their skin, if they are dehydrated, there's a lot of things you can pick up, the way they walk, the way they talk. Um, and then you can go from there and decide how you're going to go forward with, with you know, with this, with this office visit. So I'll spend 15 minutes with someone, and then my billing will be 6 or $7 more than a telephone call visit. And for those, I get audited on every single one of those. What that means, um, well, when I get audited... I, I forgot to say that last week. I have to take a copy of my notes. Now, remember, I'm an old guy. I've been, I've been practicing for 30 years. I still have handwritten notes. I don't have this new EMR things. I, I'm too old for that. So I have to make a copy of my handwritten notes, and I have to fax it into MCT audits. And that's the beauty of all of this, because all of my 240 audits, they have a copy of it over the last two years. I don't have to pr- pr- prove anything. You can go to MCP audits and to the government, and you can look at all of the records that they have there, because it's in their possession. So I have to send in a, a note to them, you know, my, my office visit, and then they'll decide to look at it, and they'll decide, well, they're not paying me for it. Now, apparently, now this is what the update is, um, and you're talking about $6 more than a, than a telephone call visit. Now, the update is I've had a few of my patients over the last couple of days call into MCP audits, and this is what they were told. Apparently... Um, the, the, the staff of MCP audits have no input in this matter. This is all done by computer, okay? So this computer does it at random. Um, that's how the auditing process works. Now, I can tell you definitively that is not true because I have 240 audits, and they're sitting right next to my secretary, and there's a bunch of them at MCP audits because they have a record of all of them, and they are all two fee codes. One is a 127, chronic disease management, where I build $7 more than a phone call for spending 15 minutes with someone in the office when I know and the other one is home visits. When I do a home visit, when someone calls me to do a home visit between 6 p.m. and midnight, I bill $25 more. That will get audited. They'll take all $25. Um, 
I'll get paid at a lower rate, but I'll, I will also get a flag for wrongful billing. So there's two fee codes that I get audited on consistently. Now, so apparently this is a computer that does all of this. You know, the staff at that MCP audits have no input in the matter. So what I was wondering is, like, here you have this computer that's like, and it's, it sounds like it's a computer from, from Terminator, from one of the Arnold Schwarzenegger movies that has a developed an artificial intelligence and is doing whatever it likes. And you have a bunch of MCP staff that are sitting there that are getting paid to sit and looking at the computer while this computer is doing whatever it likes. Um, it sounds to me like there's something wrong with this, you know, this whole MCP auditing department. And maybe, you know, I'm, I'm not calling out the, the, the staff itself because it sounds to me, to me like it's the computer. This computer is completely incompetent. And someone needs to look at the software in the computer, maybe look at another vendor to buy the software to put it on this computer. Because this computer obviously doesn't have a clue what it's doing. And the staff is sitting there looking at the computer. Right. Yeah. So, of course, if that has to be an adjustment made on the technology side, fair enough. So you mentioned some of your patients did try to uh, reach out to MCP audits on your behalf. We did give out the numbers. I'm going to guess that maybe a half a dozen or more reached out to me asking for me to uh, give them the number one more time because they couldn't jot it down. So we had at least that much interest. Oh, absolutely. And I would love for more people to call MCP audits because, like I said, you know, I, I don't have the authority to make a decision. My degree in medicine does not give me the right to make a decision to spend 15 minutes with a patient because I will get audited. They will take off the fee, which is originally just six hours more than the phone call visit. I will get audited. They'll put it back to, they'll adjust the claim to a one-to-code, which is $15 less. And on top of that, I will get flagged for wrongful billing. But like I said, I mean, you know, if a patient wants a doctor, you do have a right for a doctor to spend 15 minutes with you in chronic disease management. Now, that's another thing. Um, you know, I was I had someone, one of my patients, got in touch with the um, Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association. Now, this was quite interesting because they did have a response from them, and the response the response said that the, the the Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association, their interpretation of chronic disease management wording is different than MCP audit um, interpretation of the wording. Okay, and they don't see eye to eye. So while the staff at NLMA and the staff at the MCP audits department. While they are, uh, uh, you know, debating with each other about what it means, and none of them are doctors, I'm the one doing the work, and I'm the one getting audited and flagged for wrongful billing, billing because I'm, apparently I'm this big villain. No, I'm not a villain. Like I said to you before, I, am, I was the hardest working doctor in this province throughout the pandemic. I worked 12 hours a day. I worked 12 hours a day every single day right through a pandemic, and they chose to pick a fight with me. I'm the wrong person to pick a fight with. And the deeper you delve into it, and that's the beauty of all of this, because everything I tell you, the more I talk to you, the more information I'll get you, and the deeper hole they're going to dig for themselves. Because everything that I tell you, you can verify. I, I do not have to prove anything. You know, the records are out there. You know, the, the facts are all out there. I'm just steering you in the direction. And you can have a field day with this, Mr. Daly. You can, have, you can have a lot of fun with this once you start delving into it. I'm not asking you to take my side. I'm asking you to look at the, look at the facts and make your own decision and, and asking the people of Newfoundland and Labrador to look at the facts and make their own decision. Well, I don't need to pick a side here. The way you describe the way you're handling your practice, whether it be in clinic or in someone's home, it all makes sense to me. And there's also stories out there 
as long ago as last November that I googled up after we spoke last week about physicians talking about uh, billing audits and being consequently underpaid for their services. So I don't think you're alone. The issue for you seems to be that it's just nonstop. It's all the time as opposed to once every couple or three months a doctor will see an audit and adjustment made to fees. But for you, I think you quoted that you had somewhere in the neighborhood of 274 or something right in front of you. Yeah, 240. But okay. the, pro- the point is I get audited every si- if I do, If I build a 127 code now for spending 15 minutes with a patient in my office, it will get flagged immediately. Every single one of them, they will get flagged. Um, MCP audits will adjust the claim because it's not, it's not fraudulent billing. They will adjust the claim to a lower level from a 127 to a 1 which is the difference between $47 and $32. But that $47 fee is incidentally $6 more than the telephone call visit. And what I'm saying is that any 15-minute in-person visit with a patient is better than any virtual visit for the sake of 6 or $7. And I do probably more than one a day, less than two a day. Now, even if physicians have their practice and they want to do 15 or 20 15-minute visits a day, I think it's a good thing. If a physician wants to sit and spend 15 minutes with every single patient in chronic disease management, encourage them. If you can get a physician to do two or three different things during a visit, you will open up appointments for other people to come in. You don't, you're not making your patients um, um, book three or four different appointments for three or four small little things. That's a good thing. That's how you take care of 150,000 people in Newfoundland and Labrador. If you can make it easier for physicians to see patients. Now, you're talking about, for me to go to someone's house, get in my car, and visit someone at their house between 6 p.m. and midnight, I will bill $25 more. Now, apparently, I, you know, I'm the big villain for doing that because I'm, apparently I was doing this for my own convenience. So let's say, for example, regardless of the wording, elective or non-elective, you make it easier. You save physicians. If you want to see a patient between 6 p.m. and midnight, go right ahead. We'll pay you $25 extra. I mean, that probably doesn't even pay for the gas. But anyway, so 10 physicians in this province decide, well, this is much easier for me to do that. Maybe I will go and see five people at home. So they will get in his vehicle and drive to five different homes and provide a service to these people. Now, to drive to five different people's homes, there's a lot of effort. He's going to get paid $125 extra. Whoopity-doo. And apparently for that, I am this big villain because I dare. Now, I will get into this in another phone call because, like I said, I have a lot of information to give you. I can give you numbers of the amount of home visits that I did and how I build them because I tried in 2022 to, to be a good boy and change my practice and, and practice medicine the way that MCP audits wanted me to, not the way that I think it should be done. So I did a lot of home visits, um, and I built one per week. Now, I did lots of them after hours, but I, I felt entitled that one per week when I work after hours, go to someone's house, I would build a 249 code, which pays me $25 extra. So 52 out of the total amount of home visits I did, and that's a big number. I built, and every single one of them got audited. They took off the $25 back to a daytime rate, $25 less, and I got flagged for wrongful billing. That's why I'm sitting there with 240 audits. Now, I need to get reimbursed for every single one of them. Every single one of the audits that I have, they're legitimate. There is an, an MCP preamble, which I don't have to prove anything either. You can look that up online, um, and you can look at the, the wording of of, of, um, of chronic disease management and home visits. This is not rocket science. You know, chronic disease management, what it says, it's a physician to spend 15 minutes with the patient in the office and make a note on, on these records that he spent 15 minutes with the patient. The patient has to be under the age of 75, 
and they have to have a, some kind of a chronic disease. And there's a list of about 60 fee codes. So what you do is you bill a one to seven, which is the code for seven dollars more than a than a virtual visit, mm-hmm. and then you use a secondary code, which is the the diagnostic code, which would be diabetes or the depression, mental health could be autoimmune disease, it could be cancer of some sort, it could be endocrine disease or neurological disease. There's a whole bunch of different things. Now, just for interest sake, so say for example, a patient comes to see me in the office and they have diabetes. So I spend 15 minutes with this patient. Now, I might have three different people with the same disease, diabetes, that come see me in the office, but I don't do the same visit. Now, I will do a, a, at least a two-system examination on every single one. I'll do a cardiovascular respiratory examination. Now, someone might ask me, they might ask me about the sugar cell being variable that's all over the place. So we start talking about the insulin and the effect of food and the meals on the insulin, and we have a big discussion. Now, I write in my notes, we spoke about diabetes, and we spoke about the diet. And whatever. I don't write down on my notes every about this is how you adjust your insulin and this is how you count your carbs and this is how you take you, you take your your meals and how many times a day and how you adjust that I don't write down I mean that is elementary my my visit that I bill for is the patient is the time that I spend with my patient understood right. so Dr. Westhazen are you still asking for your patients to call MCP audits absolutely I'm asking for everyone in Newfoundland and Labrador to call MCP audits and ask them permission to tell them to call to tell them the name and tell them the doctor's name tell them to call their doctor and give their doctor permission to spend 15 minutes with them if needs be. I've spoken to a few doctors the last couple of days, and everyone are telling me they don't even dare bill a one to seven code. They don't even dare spend 15 minutes with a patient because they know they'll get audited, and it makes them feel like a villain. So they don't. They tell people to make several different appointments rather than spending a bit of time with them and billing a one to seven that makes them feel like a villain. Okay, Which is so wrong. This is absolutely wrong. I, I think the numbers that I jotted down for audit services at MCP, the local number in St. John's is seven five eight one five six six is that the accurate That's number correct, yeah and then there's a toll-free number province-wide it's one eight hundred five six three four one nine nine that's correct. I appreciate the time, Dr. Weiss-Hazen, and thanks for the update. Thank you, Kindy. You have a great day. You too. Well, Take bye care. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, it is break time. Beverly, you're next to talk about recording of doctors. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Beverly. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Uh, long-time listener. I've called a couple times. Thoroughly enjoy you and your show. Um, before the break, you said I was calling about the recruitment of doctors. I'm not. I'm calling about uh, nurses uh, in Newfoundland, specifically LPNs. Um, I'm an LPN. I've been an LPN for 13 years now. Uh, The last 10 years of my practice have been outside of this province, um, mostly due to um, when I worked here, there was no permanent full-time jobs. Uh, It was casual literally getting called at like 6.30 in the morning to come to work for 7.30. Um, Also, the rate of pay. um, I work outside of the province for like two times and a half the amount I can work for in Newfoundland. Um, In 2020, I decided to come back to Newfoundland, um, worked, uh, ironically enough, in the very first place that I had a job in Newfoundland. Uh, But because the job advertisement, again, was still casual, but the job advertisement said that no experience was required, so they weren't obligated to pay me. uh, They weren't obligated to give me my rate of pay uh, at a higher rate of pay considering my years of service because the job ad was 
advertised as no experience necessary. So my, you know, 12 years of nursing experience didn't mean anything, and I started off at the bottom of the scale. So meaning people who graduated a year before me were getting paid more than me, which I think is wrong. Also, um, you know, they're offering uh, nurses and healthcare professionals $50,000 to come home and work. Well, that $50,000 means nothing to me when I'm getting paid two and a half times the amount that I would get paid in Newfoundland. Um, you know, instead of offering people a lump sum dollar value of $50,000, they might want to consider raising the rate of pay continuously than try to give us like $50,000 to come home. I would love to be home. However, I really love where I work to now. and it just doesn't make any sense. LPNs are such an educated group of individuals that are not being used to their full scope of practice. Um, I know earlier you had spoke about uh, RNs being able to write prescriptions and specialists and things like that, which I fully support. Uh, broaden the RN scope of practice, broaden the LPN scope of practice here. We're literally practicing in Newfoundland. Well, not me, because at the end of the day, I refuse to practice here. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, Very quickly, though, just help us understand what LPNs are trained and accredited to do that are working in this province that they're not allowed to do. Well, honestly, I can't speak much on that because I don't work here anymore. But, like, when I did work here, uh, you know, we could do IV therapy. We could insert IVs. We were trained to do that. We could administer IV medications. At the time when I graduated, we weren't allowed to do that. We also weren't allowed to do anything more than a simple dressing for wound care, which, uh, you know, basically a simple dressing is putting a Band-Aid on. If you had anything more complex, even though we had the theory and the practice behind it, we weren't able to do that. Blood collection was another thing. And like I said, it probably has changed now in some regard. Honestly, the monetary value of me working away and me coming home to Newfoundland literally stops me in my track. Like when I came back to Newfoundland in 2020, um, my rate of pay was 24.50. The top of the scale, which I believe that I should have been on for my years of experience, like at the time was like 27.97 or 28.97, something like that. Um, so when I went back to work here, I went back to the same long-term care facility that I had worked at, you know, in 2009. Um, And things had changed there in some manner, but very little. It was still the same. LPNs are underutilized, undervalued, and underpaid. Um, And until that changes, like, you know, I don't think expanding LPNs' scope of practice in Newfoundland is going to solve anything, but it's certainly a step in helping our healthcare system. Um, If you look, like I practice now under the scope, of um, Alberta's LPNs. 
So if you looked at the scope of Alberta's LPNs versus Newfoundland scope, you would see a huge difference. In Alberta, they're using LPNs everywhere, um, in the OR, in emergency, in day surgery, in obstetrics. They're literally LPNs everywhere in Alberta practicing to a very expanded, um, wide scope that we are not in Newfoundland practicing as um, and until that changes there's still going to be problems and even with that changing I'm sure there will still be problems but it's definitely time for Newfoundland to start utilizing and paying and expanding LPN scope of practice because you are well the province of Newfoundland is literally pumping out some of the best LPNs in Canada and were not being utilized as we should be. Uh, I have to cut this call short because I'm on my way to get my hair done. I just returned from Nunavut, and uh, that's the things that happen when I come home. Okay. I'll call you back at a later date and talk sure. a little bit more, and I'll have some more concrete examples that I can provide to you. I hope you have a magical day, Patty. Bye-bye. I appreciate your time, uh, Beverly. Enjoy your hairdo. Here we go. We'll get some more updates from Beverly in the future. Okay, well, let's take a quick break. Appreciate the patience of our next caller. It's Dr. Mitchell McIntosh. He's a veterinarian talking about an upcoming nail trim clinic fundraiser. We'll find out more right after this. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five and say good morning to Dr. Mitchell McIntosh. Dr. McIntosh, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? Doing okay this morning. How about you? Good, good. So I've been exchanging emails with one of your colleagues about the upcoming nail trim clinic fundraiser. What's happening? Yeah, so uh, April 29th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., we're having our last uh, nail trim fundraiser for our trip to Ecuador. Um, and we leave, actually two weeks from today, we leave for Ecuador to help spay, neuter, and just provide medical care for as many animals as possible while we're there for the week. Um, our goal is to reach 500, but we're going to do as many as we can, if not more. And of course, it's not the first time you've taken such a trip. You were in uh, Costa Rica last November. Tell us about it. Yeah, that's right. Um, I wasn't uh, on that trip when uh, some other members from my team were, um, but they went down to Costa Rica in November, like you said, and they almost got the 500. I think they were at 470-some animals that they were able to to spay and neuter, and um, so it's a huge amount of animals that they that were able to get through in the week. Um, and uh, they have a, a couple days off there because we're doing surgery for you know 12 hours a day, um, so we usually uh, have a couple days of, of really long surgery days and then a, a day off to rest and then go back to surgery for a few more days. Why would places like Costa Rica and Ecuador be in such need for traveling veterinarians and staff like yourself to come and help? Is it simply about poverty level or is there something lacking in the services in those countries? Um, a bit of both. So definitely the, the financial concern, like there's just not um, the level of medical care um, even near where they are located. Um, so they, they do have a regular um, like traveling vet that will go down and, and help them out. Um, but there's also a very large um, 
stray animal uh, problem. So um, that's that's part of the reason of spaying and neutering all of them as well to try and decrease those numbers. Um, but yeah, it's a, a mix of both uh, both financial concerns and a lot of stray animals still uh, out and about. I mean, everyone would understand the spay and neuter issue, but when it comes to nail trim and what have you, is there a medical rationale or is it simply so they don't scratch up my couch or my cabinets? Uh, you mean for the, the nail trim fundraiser we're having? Yes. Yep. Um, yeah, so uh, like typically every animal would need their nails done every couple of weeks. Um, so instead of coming into the clinic for a scheduled appointment or, or to your groomer for a scheduled appointment, um, we're offering cheaper uh, nail trims on that April 29th um, just to both get people out um, to help support us, um, but also get like a regular um, nail trim that they would be getting done anyway, just for a bit cheaper. So on top, there's a couple of questions about veterinarian services. So we've been told that there's a distinct shortage of large animal vets in the province. Has anything changed on that front, do you happen to know? In Newfoundland, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, as far as I know, that hasn't changed. They're, they're still very short on large animal vets. Um, and we're even very short on small animal vets as well. Um, we're usually fully booked for days out. Um, so there's a, a shortage everywhere for veterinarians. Do we happen to know a number of uh, practicing vets in the province and what that would should be of to you know to deal with the capacity issues? Right. Uh, I'm not sure of the actual number. Um, I'm sure like the governing board would have those numbers. Um, but uh, it's it's really difficult to get vets to Newfoundland, similar to um, what the previous uh, uh, people were mentioning about um, like pay, of pay, or, um, pay rate. Um, and just uh, like in Newfoundland, it's hard to convince people to move here. Um, but when we kind of going into school and the government will fund the seats for the, the vet students to go to vet school um, and Newfoundland only funds three seats it might be four seats now um, but it's a very small number of seats that they fund for the veterinarians and um, so it's it's hard to get um, let alone people who were from here that went to school um, but people from all over the country to convince them to come to Newfoundland after they've done their schooling. You mentioned rate of pay. Anyone who's ever been a pet owner and had to go to the vet, which of course is part and parcel with having a pet, it is really expensive. Some people have talked about, you know, regulated prices and what have you, because the expense is very real. So what do you say to your clients uh, when they, you know, they get a bill and say, I wasn't expecting that much, or it doesn't seem like this is a justified cost, or however they couch it, because owning a pet does come with a massive expense when you deal with anything that's problematic with a vet? Yep, um, definitely. And, and pets are a, a very big expense to a family. Um, and what I always encourage owners to do is, is get insurance for them um, because medical care in general is, is very expensive. Um, it's, it's just very it hard to look at it um, like say if we went to the hospital and had a bunch of testing done we don't pay anything because of our insurance um, whereas pets it's usually all an upfront cost unless they have insurance um, so certainly we, we always recommend uh, getting insurance on uh, an animal especially if they're a young patient when they're nice and healthy um, but to, to prevent owners from being surprised at the cost of any medical uh, testing that we need to do we always give out quotes to make sure that they understand uh, kind of what, what it's going to cost to do this test and, and kind of treat us long term. Dr. McIntosh, one more time, the where the wins for this fundraiser. 
Yeah, so uh, April 29th at CBS Animal Hospital, um, and it's from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., and we'll have uh, the Nailstrom Clinic, obviously, and then some baked goods for sale and some, like, T-shirts and, and small stuff like that. And I believe the Animal Hospital is located at 4 Coffee Creek Place, just in case someone who's not from CBS would like to go. Yep, yep, that's correct. Appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. No problem. You have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. It's Dr. Mitchell McIntosh, a veterinarian and their fundraiser so they can make their way to Ecuador to offer those volunteer medical services. Uh, let's see here. Let's keep rolling. Let's go to line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Danny. Good morning to you. I think we're going to pee off a lot of Toronto Maple Leafs fans over the years. I've been uh, for the Leafs for 65 years. But uh, I think when there's any way that the, the manager, the Toronto Maple Leafs, can uh, bring in some of them uh, good hockey women, hockey players that played against States the other day, because that's the only chance they got to get out of this round. It was really disgusting last night. It wasn't a great start. Down three nothing, pretty quick. Uh, Samsonov had a pretty no- rough night in the in the Nets. Gave up six goals, I think, on 29 shots. You can't do that. And well win any playoff games. Top guys looked like they were okay, but Tampa Bay was just a better team last night. Yes, a better team with the talent that the that the Leafs got there. They're not showing it really potential for the, for the first game, I tell you. It's that bit all, of, you got, all you got to do now is lose the next one and they're out of this round. Yeah, I mean, for me, and I, I'm i not interested in hating on the Leafs. When we were young, you know, the rivalry between me and my buddies who were Montreal and then Toronto fans. I'm a Montreal mm-hmm. fan, so I can't say nothing. Mm-hmm. But they just don't have that bit of grit or sandpaper that you really do need this time of year. So it's fine to have the firepower with the Nylanders and Mariners and Matthews and O'Reilly's mm-hmm. and others. But it's that, it's that couple of guys that keep the other team honest and everybody with a little bit more grit. That's what they're missing. Yeah, like I say, they got no, no fortitude at all going against the board. Uh, boards at all, they're right scored, but but you know, on the boards and it's. it's uh, I just want to call let people know they say I'm a diehard Leafs fan, but they're really, they're really, really disgusted from the game last night. So we'll wait for the next one. Yeah, it was a tough one last night, no doubt about that. Uh, and I'd like to see a Canadian team win. I'm really not a Leafs fan by any stretch of the imagination, no, but no. I wouldn't mind seeing a Canadian team uh, bring the cup back. It hasn't been here in, in the in Canada, pardon me, since 1993. Amazing stuff, really. Mm-hmm. And see uh, Colorado lost last night as well, too. Yeah, Newhook and the Lance lost 3-1 to Seattle of all teams. Although mm-hmm. Seattle had a really good finish to the season, and they're not mm-hmm. a terrible team by any stretch. And then, of course, Mercer and the Devils, they got popped by the Rangers 5-1. So, yeah, yeah not good. Well, well, I'm an underdog, man, right? I'm from the underdogs. Fair enough. I don't mind that either. Right. Well, you have a nice day. I guess a lot of people saying, but that's fine, boy. you got no fate in, in these Toronto Maple Leafs. Well, they're going to have to prove that they're, they deserve any of that support or optimism because it's been a long number of years for Leafs fans. And, I mean, don't get anybody started on the fact that 1967 is a long time ago for one of the real most important franchises in the league. The most valuable franchise in the league, I believe, is, is either Montreal, Tor- Montreal, Toronto, or the Rangers. One of those three, they kind of yeah. swap back and forth. Good to have you on the mm-hmm. show. Listen, good luck. Okay. All right. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. Of course, we all know that 155,000 members of PSAC are now striking. Of course, some of those will be essential and reporting to work. To get an update, we're going to speak with the Atlantic Regional Executive Vice President of PSAC. That's, uh, pardon me, Chris DeLibertore. I think so. you pronounced the, uh, the man's name. Took away. 
Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the Atlantic Regional Executive Vice President with the Public Service Alliance of Canada. That's Chris Delibertore. Good morning, Chris. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. How do I do with the surname? Close? Not too bad, deliberatory. You, you, you got it pretty good. Got it close. I always want to be mindful of that because <laughs> nothing worse than having your name mispronounced. Okay, just very quick. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I've heard, I've heard it all, so I, I'm, I'm pretty used to it. Yeah, no doubt. I get the Patty Daly all the time. Okay, so just in reference to a call we got earlier, I don't know, I don't think you're on the ground here in this uh, province. Are you, Chris, at this point? I'm in Nova Scotia today. I might be there. Should, should this strike continue for, for any length of time, I, I might be making my way over to Newfoundland in, uh, in the not-too-distant future to, to join our members over there. Okay, so there was a caller earlier this morning talking about what he saw as he drove by one of the picket sites, and it's on Topps Road out in front of uh, Minister O'Regan's office. Just about mm-hmm. how the uh, picketers were in the roadway and maybe swinging some flags and signs and what that into the area of the roadway. So what kind of guidance does the leadership give to the strikers to ensure, number one, that the, the, the decorum, pardon me, decorum is kept and also for their safety? Well, certainly we want we want our members to be safe on the line, and we we don't want them doing anything that would that would cause uh, anybody else's safety to be to be endangered either. We we want, we certainly would want them to be respectful uh, of uh, of the the public, uh, and but but at the same time they they need to make they're out there to make a statement, and they are going to be slowing things down a bit, you know. But but we want them to do so in a respectful and safe way. Chris, there's a little bit of irony included wanting to have remote work enshrined in the next piece of uh, collective bargaining and the eventual tentative and final agreement, but they also have to report to the picket line. Why is remote work so important? Because pre-pandemic, not really much in the way of thought about uh, federal government employees or any public sector employees working from home. It was status quo, go to work. And it's not that we're saying we want everybody to work at home all the time. What we want is for there to be language that makes access to remote work you know, reasonable uh, so that it can't just be taken away without any kind of negotiation. So it's available to members who, for whatever their circumstances might be, are able to do it. And again, it's just not unreasonably denied. Like As, as we saw with the announcement back in December when, when they called uh, workers back to the office for two days a week, it was just done without any real plan, without any planning. They just said, no, you're all coming back in and they didn't even they didn't negotiate that and now we see we see our members they're coming into the office they don't have a desk to work at so they're having to turn around and go back home I mean, if we if we look at the Canada Revenue Agency for as an example the call center there they've got 1800 employees they've got 400 desks how, how, how can you have people coming into the office? Like they, they don't have the facilities to, to house these people, yet they don't have a policy, uh, an appropriate policy for, for how people are going to access it. So we want that language in the collective agreement to protect that ability for the people who can, ha- can have it work for them. And for the people who want to rich part to work, it's, they can do that too. Like, it's just making sure it's reasonable access for the members who, who it works for and that it makes sense for. What would reasonable access look like? What would constitute an exemption being granted by an employer for remote work? Well, right now, if we look at the hiring that's been done throughout the pandemic, we have people that were hired in St. John's that that has never lived in St. John's. They're 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 in on the west coast. They're 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 up in on uh, the northern peninsula. They, they've they've been hired uh, to to do these jobs remotely, and now they're being told you're you're going to have to move and come in and come here. But they were when they were hired, they were told you're, you'll always be working remotely. You'll never have to worry about this. So. 
when it, when we're talking about reasonable access, it's just making sure that, again, those people who can work from home, who have the ability to work from home, and, and to, to be clear, our members have proven they can do this and be just as, if not more effective, working from home, working remotely. And it, it, in, in the long run, it saves costs. I mean, the, in the previous budget, the government booked $3 billion worth of savings by having people working remotely that they weren't going to need this office space. And now, now they're throwing that $3 billion worth of savings out the window, forcing people to come back in. It's certainly part of the conversation, that savings, because it's very real. I wouldn't want to be in commercial real estate these days. Uh, A couple of things. So there was a story in the Financial Post back in September of last year regarding the job recovery numbers. And at that point, you know, right now, Minister Freeland says we're about 125% job recovery, which doesn't include a few things like labor market participation and the fact that as of September last year, 86% of those jobs were in the public sector. And that doesn't mean simply working for Ottawa, but in the public sector. Now that number has decreased by some 3,900, where is the union on your thoughts about the numbers of jobs that will, will remain throughout the course of this year? Because much of the hiring was done to look at uh, pandemic-related policy and programs. So I haven't started anything from the union on that front because certainly if some of those programs are going by the wayside, and many of them have, then maybe some people who were hired for those purposes are no longer required. Where's the union's, what's the union saying about this? Well, we're, we're very concerned because if you, if you look at the budget that was just released uh, at the end of March, they're, they're calling for $15 billion in cuts to public services. And they're saying it's not going to be through job cuts. I don't know how you remove $15, or $15 billion from a federal budget from the public ser- sector, from the public services that Canadians rely on, and you're not going to cut jobs. So we're very concerned about that. We're concerned that what that's going to mean for our members, and our members are concerned about it as well. So... Whenever we ask, like, how is this happening? How is this going to work? And all we, all we get is the departments and agencies will, will conduct a review. And every time we hear those words, we know that that means job cuts. But the, but the government is saying that it, that's not going to happen. And I just, the math doesn't add up. It doesn't work. Is there an acceptable number, understanding that some people are hired for very specific purposes that no longer exist that the union can live with? Let's be let's be honest. Our, our members now, even even with the hiring that's been done, our members are, are overworked. There's there's more work there for for public services than we have workers for. The the, the members are going going into to work each and every day, and the pile of work that they have to complete that day just continues to grow, and they're being asked to do more and more with less. And then when they do do the hiring, it doesn't it still doesn't address the need. Uh, let's get to the wages because, of course, that is always a sticking point when we have these types of mm-hmm. negotiations or collective bargaining. Uh, just make sure that I'm right with the numbers that I'm using here. The last wage proposal or demand I heard from the union was 4.5% for 21, 22, 23. Treasury Board was at 9% over three years, and it wasn't 333. Three, three. There were three different numbers, but it added up to nine. Are those the numbers that are currently on the table? That's the numbers that are on the table right now, and and even when the with the numbers that you're talking about there, that came from the public public interest commission recommendations, which is a, a report that's non-binding on the parties. And when that came out, uh, we said it, it didn't, it wasn't enough. It, it still fell short of the cost of living increases that our members need to get a deal. So what we're asking for, as you said, is four and a half percent per year over three years. And, and if we look at the inflationary rate, I, I realize that that right now it's it's down to about four point two, but if we look over the past two years, it's been upwards of 13%. You know, we had, it was five, over 5% last month. It was topped out at 8.1% the year before that. Um, so we're, we're dealing with 
a wage demand that we're asking for right now that still doesn't keep up with our cost of inflation. That, that's one of our key issues. We're looking for something that keeps pace with inflation so that our members, I mean, our members have seen their buying power shrink by 11%. We've got members who are going further and further into debt just to make ends meet, just to pay the rent, just to put groceries on the table. So all we're asking for is a fair wage that keeps pace with inflation so that our members can conti- can continue to make ends meet and, and provide for their families. For the 155,000 people you represent, what would a total cost be if you're successful in getting 4.5 for 21, 22, and 23? Well, I know the, the parliamentary budget uh, officer forecasted to cost uh, around $20 billion, but what, he, what they, they seem to forget is there's been independent analysis that shows that every dollar invested in the public service has a return of $1.28 to the, to the um, gross domestic product, to the GDP. So if, it, if, it inve- if investing $20 billion means that we're going to return $20, $25 billion, so an increase of $5 billion over that, I think it's a good investment. I think any corporation, any CEO, any shareholder would be very very satisfied with a 25% return on investment. And, you know, wages keeping up with inflation, uh, not so much for just about everybody in the country. Now it is coming back to earth a little bit, which is good news, but we don't feel it or see it because most of our issues regarding energy and groceries, we're still getting pretty much punished there. Uh, The leaders have been asked, well, first off, is, is there any formal negotiations ongoing today? Yes, there is. We, we remain at the table with both our Treasury Board and CRA bargaining teams, and we are committed to stay there until we achieve a deal as long as the government's committed to come with a mandate to actually deliver a deal that's fair and reasonable to our members. Is there an offer that's been formally made by the government that's been rejected, or you simply haven't seen the four and a half? Where do we stand? We just had, we haven't seen the, the, the deal that our members feel, that the bargaining teams feel would be appropriate to put to our members for a vote. We just aren't there. We don't have the deal that meets their needs, that addresses our key issues. Some of the, le- of the leaders of the political parties yesterday were asked about whether or not they would support the government if and when they went down the road of back-to-work legislation. And there was a lot of tiptoeing and tap dancing around it. What's the level of worry amongst you, the leadership, and the members that that might come to pass? Because this would be the largest work stoppage on the federal level since 1991. There would be some serious slowdown in services being offered by the government. So it might be a tool in the toolbox that they may indeed use. What's your thoughts on that concern? Well, it, it, it's, it's within their power to do. And, you know, we hope that they wouldn't, especially since this government has been very pro-labor. I mean, they, they, they've got a promise right now to introduce federal anti-scab le- legislation at the end of the year to turn around and then uh, use uh, draconian-type legislation of, of uh, back-to-work legislation uh, would really speak volumes to the, their true... Uh, pro-union or pro-labor stance, and I think it could uh, end a, a certain relationship that they have going with one of the other federal parties. I appreciate the time. Final thoughts to you, Chris, before we say goodbye. Final thoughts. It, you know, our, our members are out there. They, can, they would absolutely appreciate any and all support that, that the, their fellow Newfoundland and Labradorians can, uh, can provide to them. They're just out there asking for what's fair. They're not asking for anything that they, that they don't deserve. These members were there throughout the pandemic to provide the, the services and the benefits and the, the emergency benefits that Canadians relied on to get them through that pandemic. So any support that you can provide to them, to even just honking, honking the horn as you drive by, very much appreciated. Appreciate your time, Chris. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. That's uh, Chris Deliberatore. He's the uh, executive VP of the Atlantic region for PSAC. Break time. When we come back, we're talking public health. And Kelly Leach from Big Brothers Big Sisters. Don't go away. 
Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Let's say good morning to the Executive Director at Big Brothers Big Sisters NL. That's Kelly Leach. Good morning, Kelly. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you on the program. Before we get into some other issues regarding Big Bros and Big Sisters, what's the Megabike? Where is it? What are you doing? <laughs> well, Megabike is our new national fundraising event with this giant 30-person bike that's going to be traveling from B.C. right here to uh, St. John's. And we're encouraging people to come out and to hop on this mega bike and take a ride that they will never forget around downtown scenic St. John's in June. So anybody can just come down and join in? Well, it's a fundraiser. So, um, you know, people, there is a seat cost for individual seats or companies might consider, you know, purchasing a half or a full bike to come out and really have a fun team building event with their staff. It's for groups. Anyone 14 or up can ride the bikes. So, you know, there's information on our website about the registration process, about the cost, the fundraising options. And let's just say this bike was here last year and it was just truly unbelievable. I mean, I've been with Big Brothers a long time. We've done a lot of events. But I can say that nothing will top the experience you have on this huge bike going around downtown. So we really encourage people to take this mega ride and make this impact for local youth. We're going to pedal for potential because our mission is to ignite potential in young people facing adversity. And so that's what the funds for Megabike will support. How many seats on the bike? Well, 29 riders plus the driver. Uh, so, you know, a lot of people can fit on this bike. We will book every hour starting at 9 a.m. over two days, June 20th and 21st. So it's really a way to, you know, head into summer because that's when we're officially in summer. I'm hoping we're not going to need, you know, any snow tires on the mega bike this year. Uh, but, yeah, it's a huge amount of fun. I mean, last year people came and they, they dressed up and did their rides. Uh, I can't, you know, to talk about, you know, all of the people out on the street around downtown St. John's, you know, really cheering, cheering them on in this fundraiser and supporting the cause. It is just, it's hard to put into words how much fun it is. But you can see video from last year and look at pictures on our website and all of that is at helpingkids.ca. So let's talk about Big Brothers Big Sisters for a second. I know how important these mentoring relationships will be. How many children are waiting to be matched up with a mentor or a Big Brother Big Sister? So, I mean, since the start of COVID, you know, we've all heard about the escalation and the increase through so many services in our province, and the same lies here with us today. So right now, we have over 130 young people that are waiting to be enrolled. Of course, there's a process that the family will go through before they get matched with that mentor. So right now, 130, and of course, that increases every day, waiting to be enrolled. But we also have 60 who are on the wait list, meaning they have already gone through the enrollment process, and they are waiting to have that match connection with a mentor. So we're talking about 190 young people, and about 70% of those 
waiting for a big brother. So the need is just huge. And last year, 442 young people were matched with the mentor just in the Metro St. John's region. How does the match process work? So for volunteers, you know, you have to be 18 years of age or older and make a one-year commitment to have two to four connections with a young person each month. Um, There is a process of an application. You come in for an interview. There's reference checks, of course, police and vulnerable sector clearance. There's a couple of training sessions. You know, it's pretty in-depth, and it takes four to six weeks for, for a volunteer to go through the process. And for the family, you know, as well, there are interviews and uh, orientation and training. So it is pretty extensive, the work we do. And once we make that match relationship, you know, that's really when the work begins with us having, you know, regular contact with all members of that match throughout their relationship and their time with us. But we would encourage people, you know, to to consider it. Besides the Big Brother, Big Sister, the community-based program, there are school-based mentoring programs as well that are just one lunch hour a week. So there's lots of opportunity for people to get involved. If you have one hour a week, if you have a few hours a month, you know, check out all the program options, see where you might fit in. And, of course, this is National Volunteer Week. So it's a great time, you know, while we want to thank and highlight the incredible mentors that we have here at Big Brothers, maybe it's a time for people to consider, you know, they, they could step up, volunteer, make a difference, and we just encourage them to connect, ask the questions, check out the website. We'd love to, to have more people think about becoming a mentor. Uh, certainly everyone will understand the power of this one-to-one mentoring and what it would mean for the young person. And I would suggest the benefit to the big brother or big sister. But I just want to ask you one question about your data. I saw in the email that says, our data shows that for every dollar invested, there's a 23-fold return to society. What does that mean and how does that work? So a few years ago, we had the uh, Boston Consulting Group conduct a national um, research project across Canada with Big Brothers Big Sisters of Canada. And what they did was they they did the survey on former littles, people who were mentored through Big Brothers Big Sisters. And, of course, they were compared to a con- control group. And really they looked at what is the outcome that having that mentor made on the young person's life. Now that they are adults, of course, and in their careers, what was that impact? And the research showed that every dollar we have returns 18 to 23 to society. So that's the social return on investment, knowing that those who were mentored young in life as adults were more likely to give back in their community, whether that was financially or to volunteer. They also went on, you know, to have post-secondary education and careers, and they just, you know, feel better, I guess, and do better in life because they had this person at a critical time when they really needed it. So when we reference that, we're talking about that social return on investment, what it gives back to society for those who have a mentor throughout, you know, what are those really important years in their life. I just saw an interesting question posed on my uh, uh, Twitter feed. Can you mentor only uh, in person or can it be done virtually? Hmm. So that's 
a really good question because, of course, with COVID, we did have to pivot there and we couldn't have in-person mentoring. But right now, all of our programs are back in person. We are still considering, you know, that virtual option for a different, you know, program that we may look at in the future because really we're the only agency in the province right now in our service area, Metro St. John's, and I know we have listeners right across this province. Um, but unfortunately, as of today, everything is one-to-one in-person mentoring, okay. which we really feel, you know, makes the most impact. And after COVID and all the isolation, it just seems it's what everybody is looking for right now. So for more information, whether it be about the Megabike or about Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Eastern Newfoundland, go to helpingkids.ca. Good to have you on. Good luck with the Kelly. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, you want me to take this one to Keith now, or will we set him up for after the break? What do you say, David Williams? Okay, Keith, you hang tough there. Keith wants to talk about public health right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line one. Keith, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, yeah, no, I just wanted to uh, drop by. We haven't chatted in a while and talk about the current trend of uh, health authorities to dial back masking uh, mandates in hospitals and healthcare settings, which I think is a dangerous move and uh, totally unwarranted. I had a procedure uh, last week and everyone in the hospital was wearing a mask. Oh, yeah. No, that's here in Newfoundland. We still have it in place for now, but usually the trend is other provinces do it. And then uh, Janice Fitzgerald uses that as her excuse to, well, everybody else is doing so we kind of have to. So this is just an anticipatory sort of call because i can see it coming everybody else can and there's been murmurs within the healthcare system uh from people i know who work in it who've been talking about how they're going to end it soon so what do you say to the folks who are now yelling at the radio that the masks have enlarged parts certainly some of the masks that people chose to wear were in part ineffective you know whether it be how they put them on how they take them off how frequently they use the same mask uh because you know the public health measures that worked they all worked because the the everything was in conjunction so whether it be physical distancing masking washing your hands up and down the line you know it wasn't just one thing so people say well the mask didn't work what do you say to them well see even if people are wearing them incorrectly you're still sending a message right so if you have a if you have an inferior mask on or whatever you're still telling people hey there's something out there that we should be cautious about so it rises the level of cautiousness even you know subliminally you don't even you could be wearing a, a scarf and you know someone say why are you doing that well because covid's around it's going to get them thinking right so it's like you said it's all in conjunction with uh you know different things so if you take away you know every single thing then your odds go up right so what we're seeing now is uh every time a new variant comes around they dial back measures so delta came around we opened up a little we we popped the atlantic bubble we had some vaccine going on uh, omicron came around they got rid of almost everything so our percentage-wise of infection went from 5% of the country to about 90 after they got rid of everything. Because like you said, it's all in conjunction, right? So, uh, you know, uh, numerically, it probably would have been higher if we had no masks at all. So now we're seeing this uh, new variant. It's hard to pronounce. It's called Arctrucus or something. Uh, it's hard to say. Uh, this one is sweeping across India. So uh, recently, Joe Biden um, switched his, like, changed his 
tune from the pandemic's over to everyone who comes near him has to be tested multiple times before they meet with him. So he went to uh, Ireland, had a huge meeting with a bunch of people, uh, hundreds of them, all had to be tested multiple times before coming around him. And then he dumped $5 billion into emergency vaccine development. So this is a changing course from Joe Biden, who, you know, declared the pandemic over. And then we're also seeing that in India, where they're, they have a very right wing government who is like, no, no measures at all. We don't care. And now they're re-implementing mask mandates because of this new variant. So what we're seeing here in Canada is PEI a couple of days ago announced that they're going to get rid of their masks in their hospitals, um, stating no no good reason to do it. It just doesn't make any sense, right? So so that's kind of like it's about the awareness. And I've always said it: if you're going to, uh, you know, if you're going to just have nothing, nothing in place to slow this thing down, then people need to be warned about it. You know, like cigarettes. On a cigarette package, there's a warning. If you get, you know, if you smoke, this could happen to you. With COVID, what was the warning? It's mild. It's fine. And that is ridiculous. So you mentioned uh, President Biden. And so many people might be down this path. Okay, so he's an elderly man with some underlying conditions. Consequently, his risks are different from mine. You know, it goes back to that thought of people understand where they are, who they are, their level of health, their age, and their own risks. So for Biden, his risk would be different, say, for instance, from Dave Williams. So how do you react when people say, well, those most at risk will do what they need to do to protect themselves? Well, there's two categories of people when it comes to COVID, uh, pretty much like any, uh, like this is a level three pathogen. It's not the flu, right? So there is no invulnerable and then vulnerable. The two categories are vulnerable and more vulnerable. So uh, a completely healthy athlete, like we've seen with Jonathan Taves, uh, Chicago Blackhawks captain, he got COVID, he got long COVID. He's pretty much going to have to retire now because of it. So um, like for me, myself, I don't feel that I'm at the, you know, physical level that he is at as a professional athlete and he still got damaged beyond belief from a mild infection so this is the this is the misconception this is where i have a problem with this whole it's mild idea whereas we only have to worry about the people who are sick and elderly and have you know underlying conditions because it doesn't matter if you catch covid you become vulnerable that's the way it is and this message should have been you know brought to you by your friendly neighborhood chief medical health officer and not you know, an advocate in Stephenville. This is this is why I have an issue with this whole idea that the pandemic is over. One in 50 people is estimated to be infected right now in Newfoundland, and even a mild infection can cause massive damage. So it increases ch- childhood, uh, the chances of childhood diabetes goes up, like, uh, shockingly. And just that alone should be cause for us to have a better education program when it comes to warning people about the effects of what really can happen from COVID, because dying and going to the hospital aren't the only things we need to worry about with this virus. It actually causes what's called immune dysfunction, and it, it, it messes around with your immune system. So it could make you more vulnerable to everything else. And that's not something we should just be playing with, especially saying that it's, it's mild and just letting it run free. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak for anyone but myself, but I do know and the people that speak with me is that they're just been overwhelmed for so long now that the appetite for you know putting back public health restrictions or measures in place is of course some of that is a political decision because the politicians do know that folks are just worn out just completely overwhelmed and worn out i know it's been extremely difficult on me but i guess i have a a unique job that made it really difficult over the last number of years but uh, i appreciate the time keith thank you for this thanks patty take Take care you too bye-bye all right let's keep rolling here let's go to line number three ed you're on the air 
Yes, good morning, Patty. How are you doing this morning? Couldn't be better, Ed. How about you? Good, boy. Good. Well, listen, uh, I lost me chainsaw yesterday morning. Uh, I'm calling you from Bishop Falls. And uh, I lost me chainsaw there in New Bay Road yesterday morning or somewhere between Bishop Falls and New Bay Road up in the woods. So how'd you and, lose it? Uh, it bounced out of the truck or bounced off the quad or what happened? Well, it was on the, actually on the box on the back of the skidoo and it wasn't secured properly, I guess. And But in the meantime, uh, I uh, came off and uh, so I wasn't aware of it like I got where I was going. And uh, so I just wanted to put it out there to see if uh, somebody picked it up. I know that maybe they're... Uh, what it is, they don't know who owns it. So I just wanted to let the people know that uh, if they find it or found it and somebody got it, they, they could call me at 2904518. What kind of saw is it, Ed? It's an Oscar Vanna 445. And so were you just in getting some sticks for firewood? Well, I know I was going in for a run on the skidoo and I uh, had the saw with me uh, for... Uh, in case I got an emergency or had to boil up or something like that, you okay, know, because yeah. you said the way or whatever, right? So there's still enough snow out there in the bush to be out on the sled? Oh, yes. I was in the country way up the country in the Hodges yesterday, and the best kind of going there in places, you know, for the most part, is as good as what it been for the, for the winter. But now it's starting to melt out a bit, you know, and... Uh, but the ponds and everything is still good. Lots of ice in the ponds. I was out on the lakes and that, you know. Well, you'll be safe out there, especially when the ice, because that could change very quickly, as you rightfully know. And if anyone picked up Ed's Husqvarna, please do indeed give us a call. Uh, call Ed, actually. 290-4518. Yeah, 709, of course, too, you know. Oh, yes, sir, of and, course. 709, and 10 they, digits. Uh, another thing, too, when it comes to the health care, I was going to mention to you that, uh, you know, I, I'm a former patient that had uh, heart surgery almost five years ago, and uh, but I haven't seen a doctor now since October. My doctor was gone. We got near a doctor, and, uh, but the uh, thing of it is, uh, you know, everything is so hard now that to me, it seemed like the... The health care here now in Newfoundland is like third world countries because, I mean, you got to go to the hospital. One time years ago, you'd see on the news the people lined up over in Nairobi somewhere or Africa for long periods of time, and now that's come here to us. And you go to the hospital and you've got to wait probably eight or ten hours, you know, to see a doctor, and you mightn't see one then. I was up there some time ago, and I never seen a doctor first or last. Uh, I had to uh, see a nurse practitioner, which is fine, but, uh, you know, I, I uh, should have my blood work done and me and a checkup. You know, I was having that till the doctor left, but now I got nothing. And uh, it's not good. You had, you had three people, uh, or three or four people that told the government, you know, this is what you need to be doing. And and now uh, the health care system is gone here in Newfoundland, We, you know, for the most part. We're in a in a state, you know, a third world country state, and this was all happening over there in Greece and other places in the world uh, in the last few years. But now, it finally, come over here for some reason. Now everything is gone. Well, and I guess uh, you know the, the 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 good times or the good quality health care that we had is uh, non-existent now, and uh, you know we the people there are in a bad state because a lot of people, sick people, dying because of these things. And 
you know, the government don't seem like they uh, take it serious enough, you know, to me. And uh, spending money on people to get them to come home and incentives and all that. Well, what happened to all the doctors and nurses that was here, you know? And, I mean, they, they wouldn't treat it right. I mean, you got people batting around a, a piece of rubber on the ice or a ball up there getting paid millions of dollars. And people there in Newfoundland health care, if, if you can't get your health care, well, you can't bat nothing around, right? Yeah, and I don't, people don't want to hear this, but it's like that around the country. I got friends out west, they have the very same complaints. And now what we find ourselves in is that province versus province trying to outbid each other for health care workers, which is not helping at all. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, well, I know it was right across the country, but it seemed like whatever happened to it. See, health care was costing the country a lot of money, but now it's not costing them very much because people like me can't see a doctor. And they haven't got to employ anybody if they see me. And they call you over the phone, and you can't... I'd like to have the physical encounter with the doctor and talk to him to his face and, and get his uh, <clears throat> expertise. You don't know, my wife there a little while ago, she, she uh, had a consult, but the, but the person was in Ontario. And, I mean, we didn't know if he was a doctor or not, so she asked him, and he, he didn't even know where the drugstore was. That's how we knew that he wasn't in the province. And... Uh, so anyway, he uh, he said, you'll see who I am, he said, when uh, you get your prescription. You know, and uh, we, we didn't, uh, <clears throat> this person was up there, we don't know if he's a doctor or what he was. Oh. So, you know, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. The people, we, we worked all our lives. We paid money into the hospital. We paid money into charities. We paid money into everything. And the government is taking our money and doing other things with it, like Muskrat Falls, which uh, is a boondoggle. And, I mean, we don't, uh, you know, here we is out there. We got to spend more money on Holy Road and all this stuff. But, I mean, the people is vulnerable, and for 500,000 people that's in this province, they're there close to it, and, 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 and here we is own billions of dollars for, I mean, there's poor management on somebody's part, and these politicians, a lot of them don't have a clue about managing money. And they, they just make these forces, these things on the people, and the people didn't want Muskrat Powell, but they forced it on them. And now we got this big bill double what they said was going to be. You know, and yeah. it's not good enough. It's not good enough for the for this uh, for for the few people we got here in this province. We sh with all the oil and everything, we should be uh, in prosperity. But we're not in prosperity because the big uh, corporate uh, crowd and and the rich people are getting richer, and people like us are getting poorer. I'm on a fixed income. And I mean, uh, <clears throat> I wouldn't want to have to rear up any children now in this day and age because I mean, the price of food and the price of gas and all this stuff, I mean, is ridiculous. And still going up, I mean, when the government won't do nothing about it. And it seems like they can't, they're powerless to do it. They got no power when it comes to that. Oh, I don't know. Just one quick comment. Yes, net debt over $16 billion. But interestingly, there's more doctors in this province now than ever before. So I've really had a hard time understanding why, if that's the case, then how come so many people are unable to see a doctor? Ed, exactly. Very quickly, i got to get to the news, but if you saw Ed's Husqvarna chainsaw and you picked it up looking for the owner, it's Ed. Two nines or 709-290-4518. Good luck, Ed. Appreciate your time. Nice time to you, Patty. All the best. You too. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, another touchdown on the herder. We spoke to Darren Langdon, the head coach of the Deer Lake Red Wings. Coming up is Josh London. He's the head coach of the Southern Shore Breakers. Don't go away.
Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number one. Say good morning to the head coach of the Southern Shore Breakers. That's Josh London. Morning, Josh. You're on the air. How's it going? That's kind, you. Good, thanks. So there was a school of thought that the East were going to make quick work of the West, as I said to uh, Coach Darren Langdon. Were you surprised with the Red Wings? Yeah, they got a great team. Uh, they work hard. Uh, of course, they were able to pick up a few players that will help them. Um, but no, it was, a, well, it was a great game Saturday, close one. Um, and Friday, I think both teams knew they could play better, and we saw that in, uh, in Saturday's game. Uh, quick question that just popped in my head. Uh, any news on Mark Yetman? Yeah, he's doing well. Yeah, he's out of hospital. Um, and I mean, that's it. Uh, I'll let him comment on his news, but uh, oh, he's doing well. I'm glad to hear it. I wasn't looking for any specifics, but yes, and just yep. to remind folks, so Mark Getman collapsed what was a very scary scene up at the Southern Shore Arena, an issue with his heart, but glad to know he's doing well. Okay, so you guys bring a lot of horsepower, firepower, and a lot of experience. How do you lean on that? Because the group changes a little bit year over year, but you're defending champions, got a lot of success under your belt. How do you utilize that in a contest against a team that you've never played before? Yeah, that's right. I think we got uh, we have great team depth. Um, I mean, how we utilize it is, is roll four lines and, and play 60. Um, so our guys are fresh. You know, that horsepower piece, we can play with speed uh, because our guys are rested. Langdon talked about the fact that they, uh, you know, part of the game plan is to continue to lean on you guys and to keep the hitting up and to be aggressive. Is it a different style played by those guys than maybe the teams you played in the East throughout the year? Yeah, I think every team brings a different style. Um you know, their physical contact, they could do that. Their rink's a little smaller than what we're used to, although our rink isn't uh, big by any means. Um, so, I mean, with our team speed, we're also looking to wear them down. Um, so making it harder to play against. Uh, so taking away their time and space, uh, which is our game, and, and guys play with speed. I mean, they, they play for each other. They play with heart. Uh, so it's a lot of fun to be a part of. Who are some of the key Red Wings you really got to keep in check? Yeah, they got great D and a couple good forwards. Um, so, I mean, we see those guys on the ice uh, quite a bit, we'll say, right? Uh, so they do utilize their, their top-end players. Uh, but it's just taking away their time and space, limiting their chances, uh, and playing a hard game to, to wear them down. What you make of the crowd support in Deer Lake? Because I know the Southern Shore fans come out in droves, always have. But what did you make of the uh, atmosphere at the Hotter Memorial? So it was great. I mean, you, you look at senior men's hockey, the, the product, uh, the on-ice product is, is the best it's been in years. The, the league-wide talent. For us out east, um, is the best since I've started. Uh, so, I mean, our fan support is coming back. The fan support this year in the playoffs was better than last year, uh, and we haven't even got to the herder yet down uh, or up the shore there. So uh, it's great to see. The fans were out uh, on the west coast as well. That was great. We had a lot of local fans there for, for different minor hockey tournaments. Um, so support all around it has been good. So the obvious question is, what's it going to take to uh, wrap it up uh, this weekend up shore? Yeah, I mean, not getting into too much detail, but play our game. Uh, simple as that. Um, do what we do at home. Uh, and, yeah, we, we, won't, uh, we won't vary too much from our game plan. Uh, we know we need to do a few adjustments needed, but, uh, yeah, we'll be ready to go. I appreciate the time this morning, Josh. Good luck the weekend. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. It's Josh London. He's the head coach of the Southern Shore Breakers. Let's go to four. Eliza, you're on the air. Good day. How are you? Good day. I'm doing fine, thanks. How about you? I'm pretty good. Uh, just got a couple of things to say today. I've, I got a lot to say, but I realize lately that the more you say, the less people hear. So when you say less, 
and you try to fit that into what you want to say, I guess people will pay attention. Uh, just want to say things, something about uh, years ago, more than 20 years ago, when a group of us were advocating for long-term care beds at Golden Heights Manor. A man named Bramwell Moland, who was, uh, he was on council for years and a, a good volunteer. And I remember when we were advocating, he said to me, he said, Liza, make sure you get your facts straight because then you can't be backed in a corner. And that went well with me over the years because we need our facts. Like sometimes you, you, you look for information and, and you get that much coming at you, 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 you don't even know what to make of it. So finding the right person who can answer your questions and getting factual information is crucial when you're looking for information about anything. And another man, Heber John Keel, I don't know why he said it, but I've heard him say it many times. Every tub got to stand on its own bottom. And I thought to myself, well, my interpretation of that over the years was take responsibility of your own actions. If you're going to do something, uh, stand on your own two feet. And if uh, I say to, to the crowd that's up on the, the rally line where we're going by the hospital, you know, like some people would say, you know, it's all according to who, who comes up there. You never know. Somebody might get out of hand. And I said, well, if anybody gets out of hand, which they don't, we got a good crowd, I've, I've always said to them, every tub got to stand down its own bottom. Why should one adult take the responsibility for another adult's actions? So that's the two things that I want to send out to all the listeners today and to reinforce in myself. Get your facts straight, and then you can't be backed in a corner and stand on your own two feet. Is there anything specifically that brings upon this commentary this morning? Like, uh, what are we talking about with lack of facts? Well, I, I, all over the years now, like since then, it taught me a lesson. But we're trying to get factual information regarding health care issues. And sometimes it's very difficult because you're getting mixed, you're getting mixed uh, information from people who should know the difference. And that's another thing, too. Like, if you're trying to get factual information, you should go to the source. And if you find the right source, and if they give you the wrong information, well, you found the right source, but it's their problem if they gave you the wrong information. So we're, we're seeking, like this small group that we have now, we're seeking factual information because it's only fair to everybody, like the one who's giving it and the one who's receiving it, and then the sharing of it. If it's not factual, what a mess. What a mess we create. No doubt about that. So what's the question you're asking looking for factual information on? Oh, well, right now, listen, like I said, i got a lot to say. But all I want to say today is, like, let's be factual. Let's get the facts out. And one more thing, though. Um, we have a new provincial health authority. How good would it be to start fresh with people that's in those positions now uh, to be upfront and be transparent with the people. Like over the years, how many times do we hear people say, government has to be transparent? We hear it all the time. Yep. But w w somehow we have to enforce transparency. We have to bring people who are in positions of power to accountability. We talk about it we got to find a forum to bring it out there. And you know what? I think it's, it's headed in that direction. I don't know how long it's going to take. But I think, you know, no matter what government is in, they all talk about transparency. When they get in, they're no more transparent than the government before. And that's not good. Is that what we want to pass along to 
future generations and our children and our grandchildren. Like, if something happens, uh, if, if a child makes a mistake or does something wrong, are you going to pull them to one side and say, you know what, you've got to try to cover that up now. You don't have to admit you've done wrong. There's something wrong with the picture. And anyway, that, that, that's about all I want to say now. I've got a lot to say, but I've got to take it in bits and pieces. Well, we'll take it up again next time, but I'm big on facts. As best we can get them, it makes me happier and I think better for all. I appreciate your time, Eliza. Thank you. And thank you. Take care. Uh, you too. All right, bye-bye. bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning. When we come back, Ron wants to talk about what people are referring to as the commissioning of Muskrat Falls. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Ron, you're on the air. Yes, Patty, thanks for taking the call. Uh, I like that uh, lady's uh, statement here about getting the facts out. you know, I'm phoning in about Muskrat Falls Commissioning. And when I heard, uh, what's her name, Jennifer Williams last week saying it's commissioned, mm-hmm. um, I got a little tiny bit of experience with commissioning things, like not a lot, but it's like I'm like Andrew Fury, like I'm not an engineer, I don't sign off on stuff, but I've been around it, right? So, and when she came out and said it's commissioned, there's like, uh, like someone out in the general public or whatever, they'd probably think, okay, there's one sheet of paper, that someone signs and says, okay, this whole project's commissioned now, right? Did you get that impression or? Well, I certainly don't feel that way. Yeah. Okay, so what I'd like to just enlighten maybe other people that might think, I'm like, you know, okay, you know, people that, I can't speak for everybody else, obviously, but I worked at Hibernia. Uh, I was there before the two pieces were put together, like the top sides and the GBS platform and all that stuff, right? So, I was working on one specific piece of that puzzle kind of thing, right? So I've worked with the vendors that were coming in to make sure it was working properly and uh, like learning the system and everything. And each individual component, like say, had to be commissioned, you know, as such. So I don't know, I don't know how many commissioning documents were actually had to be signed for Hibernia because you had drilling and production and then the power plant and different things and that, right? So in this case here, like I know like the turnbuckles breaking on the towers. So like it's almost like those turnbuckles need a commissioning document. You know, is like each little system in there needs a commissioning. Sure. And I know the last thing we need at the end of this is another inquiry and the commissioning process you know all of a sudden you know like Andrew Furry said well I'm not the engineer I don't sign off on it I'd like to hear like who is signing off does Jennifer Williams sign off does you know and how many different commissioning documents is actually in place here because you know like when I listen to your show I think with Jesse someone said like are we letting GE, GE off the hook here I don't think so my understanding is that there's going to be a legal remedy to this delay caused by their inferior software but insofar as commissioning documents okay it's an interesting perspective to take and I don't know I mean who exactly is involved but there's a full team working on the lower structure project at Hydro including management there's actually a federal government appointed independent engineer which I'm sure is part 
of this last final commissioning paperwork, as they refer to it. So, but I think what the general public wants is to just know that it's actually done and that everything is working. I've never heard an update about the, obviously, the uh, problematic turnbuckles that were busting loose, and that could have huge implications for the integrity of those towers. So I've, that's a good one to bring up because I kind of forgot about that, and yeah. that is a big issue. But I'm sure everything like that is part of the final commissioning and approval process, I would think. Yeah, because I, I met a guy one time, and he was involved. His company was actually involved in putting in the, the pads for the tower, say, right? Okay. So, like, in 10 years' time, if the actual base of the tower is, fails somehow or there's some kind of problem with the base part, or, but when you break everything down into components and who signs off on what here, like, and 10 years down the road, okay, well, the, the, the structure of the tower, is that the same person who built the tower that, put, that supplied turnbuckles? It, 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 like a lot of the focus seems like it's going on GE software, you know, the big picture. But there's a lot of small pictures too here to take under consideration. Like and, and you know, is I just picture myself. I don't have a generator or nothing hooked up here yet or anything. But when this uh, Hollywood thing comes offline, man, I, I tell you, like I'm worried about it. Like you know, is it's a long way to send that power down to us here in the major part of the you know province here, like for the population wise. I mean, like you know, is and no one wants to be without power, but like we're a long ways away from that. If those towers come down in a nice storm, like we see in Quebec a little while ago, you know, with you know up through the states and Ontario, Quebec, what was going on up there, right? You know. Well, your worry is not unfounded. I mean, no. I'll, it remains to be seen when and if Hollywood ever comes offline. That's yeah. I'll throw that out there. But yeah. Liberty Consulting, which has been making uh, plenty of presentations to the PUB, they're quite clear on the reliability risks. They've said that if we have one of these major types of storms and there's any significant downage in the Long Range Mountains, for instance, not only the rugged or remote terrain that it is, but Liberty Consulting was talking about 30 to 45 days worth of rolling brownouts or blackouts, so that reliability question looms large. Yeah, for sure, yeah, yeah. And like in regard to commissioning, it's like, you know, you hear it tell before, like, you ring a bell, you can't unring it. Once you sign them documents and it's commissioned, I don't know what the legal ramifications are, but I don't know how you can uncommission it all of a sudden, right? If you, once you sign off, is, you know, the people that are supplying you with those, uh, systems and everything there once they get that signature on the bottom of the paper and there's people got pressure put on them to sign documents and you know is the people just want things to go away all of a sudden because it's time to get moving is i've been on a, a couple i've said mentioned hibernia but i was on another rig too coming out of the shipyard and and uh, you know there's a lot of pressure exerted on people to get things signed off on right so you know is i just hope we don't like end up in another inquiry and uh and just just on another little note, is something similar to this is uh, two more quick little things. If you, if you got another car in the line, is you mentioned tearing over earlier, like coming back, and like I knew a little bit about that uh, a little while ago. One of the guys filling me in that's involved with the work in Spain and that, and uh, you know, I knew some things weren't being done right and what was coming down the line here before I got back to Newfoundland, and. Uh, I know, again, when I work in the offshore, like sometimes we'd send equipment away to be refurbished or whatever, and it literally, like, you wouldn't hardly believe it, it came back with a coat of paint on it. The, the thing wasn't even pressure washed. The dirt, dirt and grease was painted over when the way we sent it away, and it was supposed to be rebuilt by a vendor. And, you know, that, that's just a small piece of equipment, and I know that here and over, 
FBSO look, look pretty coming back, but obviously some of the workings are not too good there. So Yeah, I mean, the looks is uh, just simply superficial. We were hearing dribs and drabs while it was over in Spain, and of course it was only supposed to be there for seven months. Thirteen months later, it began uh, coming back to this province. We heard yeah, several stories of there's a problem with the work, there's a problem with the work, and now some of the work wasn't even done. So yeah. big questions, and we yeah. are in on that project. Yeah, you know we've oh, got sure. we've got to get a little bit more information from Suncor. They're not even giving us timelines any further. That's eight hundred direct and indirect jobs. We put two hundred million dollars cash, three hundred million dollars in royalty relief. So yeah. it's not insignificant. Yeah, and on a personal note, like I just got a call. I got my car in the garage. It, it, it all ties together here, right? The next thing I'm going to say, I put my car into the dealership where I bought the vehicle. They ordered the parts, can't get the parts. Now, I just got a call this morning. They're saying, okay, we're going to have to put aftermarket parts on your car now. You know, I'm thinking, like, I said, what's on the goal? He said, well, we can't get parts, like, whatever. So I'm thinking, that's why I put it in the dealership to get, like, the certified manufacturer parts. And now they're telling me, okay, we're going to have to put parts in from, you know, NASA, Canadian Tire, wherever they can get parts at, right? I don't know if they're buying them in the auto network used parts or whatever, but. It's like, that's not what I'm paying for. That's not why I bought the vehicle. That's not why I put it back in their shop. If I wanted aftermarket parts, I would have brought it to an aftermarket dealer, like to Buddy Down on Bogey Day Road or something like that, or whatever. It's, you know, so that's a personal note for me. But it all, the big picture of it all is like, you know, you pay for something, you expect to get what you pay for. So you what, they just don't have access to factory parts, or what's the issue? I have no idea what's going on. They got me in a rental car. They, they took the car in for a check. Just as I put in for a service check. Oh, yeah, this is gone, whatever, right? I see, okay, just fix it. That was like last week. You know, I'll be here tomorrow, be here tomorrow, be here tomorrow. Next thing they're following me, give me a rental car. Now he wants to get the rental car off the road because they're paying for that and they're just going to throw an aftermarket part on there, right? So that's another convers- another phone call I got to make here. So, yeah. That's a strange one. I got a service coming up too, and I think there's a couple of recall issues, and I think I might be experiencing some sort of problem. I better not be getting aftermarket parts. Well, I asked about warranties and all that stuff, but they said, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll do the regular warranty and the certified part. But I'm thinking, okay, they're going to do the regular warranty, but how good is this part? Where are they getting it from? You know, is But again, you tie my personal experience today into. Tiranova, Muskrat Falls, like, you know, you pay for something, you know, like that Hibernia project, that was only three, I think it was 3.8 billion to build it. You know, this, no, these numbers are incomprehensible to people yeah. like us. That's you know, a you know, fact. Uh, Ron? 13 billion dollars, that's, you know, I, I can't get my head wrapped around them numbers at all. You've had the final word. We're running out of time, but I appreciate you making time for the program, Ron. Thanks, Pat. Take care. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, let's go to a couple of interesting points made there. All right, good show today, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.